US-supported neo-fascist coup in Brazil is complete. Now it's time to sit back and watch it, hopefully, implode. Police violence is bad enough in Puerto Rico, but when it is emboldened with the archipelago nation's punitive governance, it becomes deadly. Not that you'll hear it or read it in any media reports on the opioid crisis, despite the hundreds of on-air minutes and thousands of print inches that it has attracted in the media, but the opioid crisis is all due to race. And not that you'll hear it or read it in any media reports on the closing of bricks and mortars retail stores, but it's not online disruption that's shutting them down and putting people out of work. It's private equity which profits from closing your local supermarket. Jeff Dorchin will have a moment of truth, which I'll tell you about in a moment. And during my opening monologue, I'm... Incredibly depressed. In other words, four hours of fun here on This Is Hell, as always. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, This Is Hell. This week's live four-hour This Is Hell is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment. WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now at thisishell.com, I think. Maybe? Is that correct, Alex? Thisishell.com, where we're streaming live right now? Yes. Well, there's a link there. Okay. And podcast in its entirety shortly after our live broadcast, also at thisishell.com. We're also rebroadcasting an abbreviated form on the Southside's Lumpen Radio and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio. And on Instagram at thisishell. During this week's hell, the U.S. coup to overthrow the democratically elected government of Presidents Lula da Silva and then Dilma Rousseff were committed by weaponizing the legal system against the people of Brazil. In a process where justice is turned into a cudgel called lawfare, the U.S. has been rolling through Latin America, turning back the pink tide of left-leaning governments in the region. In fact, the U.S. is now employing lawfare against Colombia, Argentina, and I'm guessing elsewhere that we just don't know about. This is Hell was one of the very, very few, I mean, if there were any other media outlets that covered the Brazilian coup as it happened in real time over the past several years. We'll have a review of how and why the coup happened and find out what's taking place now that the U.S.-backed coup government has taken power. And we have the return of This is Hell contributor, the editor and correspondent, Brian Muir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead. Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's 
news, pro news program from the South. Find Brazil Wire online at brazilwire.com and Telesur English at telesurenglish.net. After our recap of the U.S. coup in Brazil and a review of the first few months of the neo-fascist government that's taken power, in the second hour, we'll discuss the impact of U.S. colonialism and how it has created a normalization of killings by police in Puerto Rico. Policing in Puerto Rico is notoriously violent. The Department of Justice, in a damning report, condemned the force for their use of violence and demanded reforms. Instead, the police actually doubled down and made it easier for cops to get away with murder. But hey, if you're going to impose colonialism upon a nation... You're gonna need violent cops, really violent cops, to enforce the unfair, unjust, and unequal system. We'll learn what Puerto Rico's policing reveals about colonialism when we talk in the second hour to Mexican-American and Latina, Latino, I would add in Latina X studies scholar Marisol Lebron. She is author of Policing, Life, and Death, Race, Violence, and Resistance in Puerto Rico. Marisol is assistant professor in the department of uh, assistant professor of studies, Mexican-American and Latina studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Marisol is also co-founder of Puerto Rico Syllabus, which provides a list of resources for teaching and learning about the current politi political and economic crisis in Puerto Rico. Find out more at PuertoRicoSyllabus.com. Find out more about Marisol at MarisolLebron.com. Following our talks on Brazil's neo-fascist coup, it was backed by both the Democrats and Republicans here in the U.S. And our discussion of how continuing U.S. colonialism has normalized killings by police in Puerto Rico. The opioid crisis in the U.S. is the result of racism. Not that you're going to hear that on the news, but the very concept that there are good drugs and bad drugs, soft drugs and hard drugs, all defined by the color of the skin of the drugs users, actually led to the opioid crisis. Opioid makers knew that if they marketed the drugs to white people, they wouldn't have the stigma so often associated with drugs that black people use. And because black people weren't using them, the opioids weren't as heavily criminalized or as quickly, and the scourge was allowed to devastate white America. Yep, this time white, privile white privilege turned out to be deadly for white people. We'll have what the opioid crisis is all about explained to us by returning guest historian Donna Murch, who wrote the Boston Review article, How Race Made the Opioid Crisis. Donna is Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University. This is Donna's second appearance on our show. She was on our program back in May of 2016 when we spoke with her about her contribution to the Liza Featherstone edited False Choices, the Faux Feminism of Hillary Clinton. Donna's essay was titled The Clinton's War on Drugs, Why Black Lives Don't Matter. You can follow Donna on Twitter at Merchnik, that's M-U-R-C-H-N-I-K. After we talk Brazil's neo-fascism, Puerto Rico's normalized police violence, and how racial capitalism caused the opioid crisis, we'll move on to some more hilarity when we discuss the real reason bricks-and-mortar grocery stores are closing. And no, it's not because of the innovative and disruptive and destructive force of new online retailers that's causing the collapse of retail grocery stores and employment in the industry. No, it's not Amazon's fault. It's private equity's fault. Private equity rides into town, buys up the local grocery store, a grocery chain the community depends upon, and is a central hub in their culture, strips it of its assets, cuts worker wages and benefits, and eventually their jobs, and drives the stores out of business, all while getting very rich off their profits then riding out of town and leaving the devastation behind. 
The private equity business model is to strip assets from companies that they acquire. The latest victims, retail grocery chains. Returning to This Is Hell is economist Eileen Applebaum, and who will, and she will be joined by her co-author, the human resources scholar Rosemary Batt, to discuss their Center for Economic Policy and Research report, Private Equity Pillage, Grocery Stores, and Workers at Risk, which also appeared in the American Prospect. Eileen is co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, fellow at Rutgers University for Women and Work, and visiting professor at the University of Leicester in the UK. Rosemary is Alice Cook, professor of Women and Work, and chairperson of the Department of Human Resource Studies. Eileen and Rosemary's private equity at work when Wall Street manages Main Street was selected by the Academy of Management as one of the four best books of 2014 and 2015 and was a finalist for the 2016 George R. Terry Award. This is Eileen's second appearance on This Is Hell, as she appeared on our show back in September of 2014, about five years ago, to discuss her and Rosemary's award-winning book that I just mentioned, Private Equity at Work. You can find out more about their latest study at CEPR.net. Then we'll wrap the whole show up with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And this week, Jeff complains intersectionally. And for me, the whole damn thing is rather depressing. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? I have six hours to figure out a good excuse to get out of going to this Bernie Sanders fundraiser organizing party. <laughs> so if anyone has any ideas, please email me at alex at com. I probably can't use my show as an excuse to get out of a second thing in a row with my friend, uh, but I got to get out of this thing, man. This guy keeps asking me for $3 every couple days on the email. I'm not going to, you're supposed to give me money. <laughs> so if anyone has any good ideas for how to get out of this fundraiser, uh, email me, please. Dude, your kid is always a great excuse. In fact, you should have just named the kid excuse. It Built was. an excuse should have been the first name. Uh, brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your Saturday morning hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. It's also funny because I was talking to my mom this morning about how Bernie is good, but I'm trying to get out of this damn thing. <laughs> Uh, this week's Hangover Cure is a packet of Tato's, as in the popular Irish chip, according to another Hangover Cure from the article at IrelandBeforeYouDie.com, ranked, or headlined, ranked, Ireland's 10 favorite hangover foods. When it comes to classic Irish hangover foods, a packet of Tato is a popular choice. Renowned as the original Irish crisp, they are the perfect snack to satisfy the horrible, f- empty feeling that comes after too much drink. Oh, you guys get that after you drink, huh? <laughs> Cheese and onion flavor is a sure favorite, but salt and vinegar is great for replacing all the salt that left your body during dehydration. So for added carbs, cram the Tato's between two slices of white bread with a lashing of Kerrygold Irish butter. Oh, that sounds good. For the ultimate Irish meal. That makes this week's Hangover Cure, the classic Irish hangover food, a packet of Tato's. Or I assume you just could eat salt, right? Yeah, I, I, I actually, I'm more worried about replacing the vinegar that I lost during dehydration. <laughs> You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. I've been really, really freaking depressed, but don't let that get you down. It's my own damn fault. I had this great idea, the spark of genius to do a radio show where we would report on the news that nobody else is covering and then have deep, long-form discussions to dive into the topics to the point where we, you and I both, can more fully understand the context as well as all the complexities of issues that are being ignored by everybody else. That means a few things. First, as the audience may have never heard the story or topic before, I have to introduce the issue in its entirety, including its origins and its future and everything that led up to the situation as it is happening 
today, right now. And that's kind of tough to do, especially when it's a topic that I know absolutely nothing about prior to booking the guest. But that's the problem. We're actually pursuing the stories we know nothing about because we're trying to learn about the world, the entire world around us. So every week, all of a sudden, I have to be able to at least fake like I am well-versed in a subject well enough to give the respect to our guest and their work that they both deserve. Second, there's likely a reason the media is ignoring news we cover. And it's likely because it's horrible, awful, hellish news that nobody wants to admit is true or happening. You know, like near-term societal collapse due to climate change. And in the next decade or two near-term. Or maybe it's not covered because, for instance, there is no debate in the U.S. about support for, let's say, a neo-fascist coup in Brazil because the coup got bipartisan support as have the deadly sanctions in Venezuela, which this week passed This Is Hell guest and Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz estimated had cost 40,000 lives in Venezuela. Not that you'll see on the news that a lot of the devastation and destruction happening in Venezuela right now is the fault of U.S. sanctions. I can tell by the number of people we have subscribing to our show on Patreon reporting that your tax dollars are funding neo-fascist coups and the deaths of tens of thousands of innocent Venezuelans. Let's just say it's not good for your Nielsen numbers or for your bottom line, and it's certainly not patriotic. Hell, some may think it's downright un-American. Criticizing capitalism and being un-American ain't going to do your pocketbook any good either. Who knew that the market wouldn't reward or incentivize anti-capitalist criticism and analysis? It's shocking, I tell you, shocking that supplying the demand for dissent wasn't a good business model. Having discussions like these are also not the kinds of discussions that get other media to cite your show. If you want attention in the media, you not only have to speak the language of the industry, but you must be part of their conversation, a conversation that does as much as it can to reproduce the capitalism from which it benefits. In other words, the stories are selected not based on their importance to the world or the viewing audience, but how they help out the news program's bottom line. Ever wonder why a new fast food burger is reported on the news? Or there's so much panting and drooling during days of coverage of auto shows? It's not because the stories are newsworthy. They're not bumping killings of Rohingya or the violence targeting the Roma or the mass incarceration of the Uyghur or Australia's brutal detention camps for migrants or whatever the hell is happening in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, or wherever the hell else the U.S. is currently at war without congressional permission. They're not bumping all that for the opening of the newest chain restaurant to arrive in town because it's a more newsworthy story. They're the new Krispy Kreme or whatever the flavor of the day is to promote capitalism. Hell, for a local news station, I've mentioned this before, but I had to cover a McDonald's-inspired version of the Mac Arena dance back in the late 1990s. The McDonald's called the Big Mac Arena. Pretty clever, huh? And I got in trouble for refusing to interview the PR person who was hustling the event. When I asked my managing editor why I was even covering the event, he said, McDonald's is a local business, and we should support them. Which I took as, they're an advertiser or a potential one. The most depressing part is, whatever the hellish topic is that we cover on the show, I have to think about it long and hard for hours at a time, focusing on it and nothing else. I have to wallow in that self-imposed dreck, and when you want to slither out of that primordial goo of horrors, you can't get it all off. 
You can't wash it off. You can't use a Brillo pad. It just won't come off. So at 3.22 a.m., you wake up and find yourself staring at the ceiling and wondering how many people are dying right now because of sea level rise or what are me and my girlie going to do when the whole world collapses in 10 or 20 years? It's not like I can turn that switch off once it's turned on, and with so many awful switches turned on in my head at all times, the cross-currents of depression really get together and do a number on my psyche. It gets so bad that when a friend asks me, hey, you want to visit me in France? I got a new place, and you're welcome, more than welcome to stay. All I can think is, sure, that is, if society doesn't completely collapse before me and my girlie can save up the time to take off. Don't get me wrong. This show, This Is Hell, has given my life meaning. Whatever meaning that is. Listeners have told us that the show does a great service and is something that is desperately needed in the vast wasteland of our media landscape. But no wonder nobody else is covering the issues we are and the way we do with the people we have as guests on our show. Because when you do all that, you come to a horrible realization. That realization is... This is hell. This week's question from hell is, how could a presidential candidate best pander to you directly? How could a presidential candidate best pander to you directly? Oh, geez, my answer should have been. Subscribe to patreon.com slash this is hell. All replies get read on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a stainless steel This Is Hell coffee mug. Again, the question from Hell is, how could a presidential candidate best pander to you directly? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, a review of how and why the U.S.-supported coup in Brazil that ushered in neo-fascism happened and what's been taking place since the new right-wing president took office. Deadly policing has become normalized in Puerto Rico, all thanks to U.S. colonialism. The opioid crisis has, was driven by racism, but you're not going to hear that from the president or the media. Private equity, not innovative disruptors like Amazon are destroying bricks-and-mortar retail grocery stores across the U.S. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin complains intersectionally. We'll also have rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow hacker psychedelic warlord who you may know as Beto O'Rourke, and believe it or not, his punk past actually made the front page of the New York Times today. But they didn't mention his association with Cult of the Dead Cow. Of course, we'll have the question from Hell. We want to thank some people for sharing the show online and others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Both major U.S. political parties supported a coup in Brazil that brought a neo-fascist to power. And after years of Western media characterizing the fascists as corruption fighters, we're now seeing what they're actually all about. Here to help us understand what's happening in Brazil now and how and why we got to where we are 
editor and correspondent Brian Muir edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in his series Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brian. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South. You can follow Brazil Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur and find Brazil Wire online at brazilwire.com and Telesur English at telesurenglish.net. So you've reported to us on the coup in Brazil for years in real time as it happened. In your book, you offer a timeline of how the coup took place and questions that it leads you to ask, why were Brazil's successive presidents, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva and then Dilma Rousseff, the target of a coup? What did they represent or what were they doing that so threatened their opposition and apparently the U.S. that they needed to be targeted by a coup? Well, Chuck, it's interesting because they weren't uh, really radical uh, anti-capitalists or anything. And for a while, I knew from the work I was doing at that time, I actually had someone from the World Bank tell me in 2006 that they were supportive of the Lula administration and the Kirchner administration in Argentina because they represented positive alternatives to Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. You know, because they were implementing uh, social democracies, but that were still pretty capitalist friendly, you know, like they maintained some neoliberal policies while trying to do redistribution to um, eliminate poverty and generate jobs at home and things like that. So they weren't super radical. But what I think happened is that starting in 2006, when Brazil discovered some of the world's largest offshore oil deposits in the pre-salt um, area offshore of Santos and Rio de Janeiro states, the, the next month, the United States reinitiated its southern command, its southern fleet, the Navy, you know. And I think that the amount of oil that suddenly popped up in Brazil uh, piqued the interest of the U.S. And the fact that Brazil didn't, uh, it, it refused to privatize this oil really annoyed the U.S. because you see what the U.S. government does to countries that don't privatize their oil, like Iraq, uh, Libya, etc. Um, it's usually enough reason alone for the U.S. to get interested in overthrowing a regime. But there's all kinds of other factors as well. You know, when Hugo Chavez died, then the United States didn't need this kind of positive example of center-left government that was doing, for example, opening up 50% of the free public university slots to Afro-Brazilian youth and poor youth and, um, you know, doing a lot of things to, to subsidize family farmers. They didn't need that anymore in Latin America. So there's an element of hegemony as well. It seems like with the current rollback of the pink tide, which is happening all over Latin America, the U.S. is really interested in just destroying any government that's left of center. Any government that doesn't do 100% of what capital wants, what imperialist capital wants in the region. So I think it's a really like a combination of a lot of factors. And we know that the, we know from Edward Snowden about all of the NSA spying. Brazil was the second most spied country in the world by the NSA. 
during the Lula and Dilma presidencies, uh, after the United States itself. It was Spain itself most, and then uh, Brazil was second. And so uh, there's all kinds of issues at play, but those, I think, are the two most important. You write, it is no secret that the U.S. government has been working to roll back the so-called pink tide of center-left and left governments in Latin America, which flourished in the 2000s. As past guest on our show, Mark Weisbrot from the Center for Economic and Policy Research points out in a recent interview, Hillary Clinton admitted to supporting the coup government in Honduras in 2009 in her own autobiography. Brian, to you, what explains why the U.S. media, why the U.S., its media, its citizenry, the voting public, seemingly doesn't know or doesn't care or doesn't care to know about the U.S. impact on Latin America? Why wasn't, for instance, support for the coup, uh, the Honduran coup, an issue for Hillary in 2016? Why don't we seemingly care about the coup in Brazil or the impact of sanctions on Venezuela? I just think, you know, when you talk about... and. Uh, I, I bet this is going to come as a shock to you, Chuck, because I've never criticized the hegemonic American media on your program before. <laughs> but I think I think that you have to view the media as a partner of the United States State Department in Latin America, as it has been for years, as it was during the dictatorships in the 60s and, and 70s in Latin America, and probably long before that, you know, probably back to the Spanish War of 1898 or whatever. I mean, the media... You have to look at the, I mean, if you want to really analyze the United States, you look at the extended or the expanded state. It's not just the government. It's the corporations, the media corporations, the political parties, you know, uh, sectors of the, the higher education system all working together to advance the interests of the economic interests of the United States in the region. So I think a lot of Americans who would be upset to know what how the U.S. is intervening in Latin America, how it's meddling in foreign elections and, and, and also uh, implic- uh, causing regime change and things like that. I think a lot of Americans would be interested to know about that and would be against it if they knew it was happening, but they're being misled deliberately by the U.S. media. So it's hard to, you know, it's hard for me to even talk to people in the United States a lot of times. You meet someone who's like super well-educated and a nice person and this and that, but they've been kind of like so brainwashed that you you mentioned that you think Maduro is a pretty good president and they just go through the roof. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like Cold War style stuff. You write the corruption investigation operation car wash that led to the coup has been transformed into a multi-country operation that has now resulted in corruption charges against eight current or former Latin American leaders. The U.S. government was involved in at least 41 coups in Latin America during the 100-year period ending in 1994. In the case of many of them, such as the 1964 coup in Brazil, the information about U.S. involvement took decades to come out. After careful analysis conducted over the past three years at Brazil Wire, we already know enough how however, to show that there is a relationship between the U.S. Department of Justice and Brazilian regime change through Operation Car Wash. So in the past, the U.S. public could argue we simply didn't know what our big bad government was up to. This time, we know, but it's not being reported. Does that make the U.S. public any more complicit in the coups you see taking place today in Latin America than coups dating prior to 1994? Are we any more complicit today because at least Brazil, where in Telesur English, has been reporting on what's happening in Brazil? 
it comes down to this, you know, I mean, it, it's a very complex question, but if you believe in international law, international human rights law, and you believe in the rule of law in the United States, then you know that ignorance is no excuse. You know, so if your tax money is going to finance regime change, op regime change operations in other countries that are resulting in deaths, then you are kind of complacent in that. I hate to say it, you know. <laughs> but but I don't think it's really I don't think it's really uh reasonable to expect Americans to know what's going on in Latin America right now by the level of misinformation that everyone's being bombarded with in in the media, on the social media. It's gotten really sophisticated. It's like like social media has has created a whole new dimension to this. And you don't even really need censorship anymore because you just have like algorithm tweaking to bury the algorithms on the social media of of people who are talking about what's really going on in Latin America. And I, I saw a report today in Spain, for example, that the far right in Spain is doing the exact same thing with the WhatsApp social media app that it did in in Brazil last year, last October. Like they've they've suddenly started bombarding millions of people in Spain with hate speech messages on WhatsApp uh, in, in the exact same manner they did in Brazil. And it's like WhatsApp is supposed to be cryptograph, uh, you know, cryptified or whatever, so you can't police it. And, you know, how can the average person protect themselves against this kind of stuff? It's a whole new way that people are being manipulated. You don't need censorship anymore. If you can just lie about things and perform character assassination and slander over this massively popular social media app. And that's not the only way in which this coup was reinforced, the way that it started. You write how you mentioned in 2008, the U.S. Department of Justice indicted Republican Senator Ted Stevens, who is then the senior ranking member of the U.S. Senate. And at the time of his leaving office was the longest serving Republican senator in U.S. history. He was a Republican from Alaska. Stevens was indicted only 100 days before his attempted reelection, was found guilty only eight days prior to the vote, ending up losing by only 2 percent, but all charges were dropped immediately following his electoral loss. You write, after a special prosecutor is assigned to investigate prosecutorial misconduct, the charges are reversed, and two Department of Justice officials are accused of criminal negligence. Problems with the prosecution include relying almost entirely on plea bargain testimony from a single unreliable witness, exaggerate, exaggerating about the val uh, value of the repairs that were going to be done to an apartment or a home, leaking misinformation to the media, and violating Brady rules, destroying, hiding, or refusing to admit evidence beneficial to the defense. Then you ask, could this case have been used by the DOJ as a blueprint for the remarkably similar frivolous investigation against Lula? Now, Stevens was the senator who famously called the Internet, a series of tubes while he was sitting in on the Commerce Committee net neutrality hearings while confusing the Internet with email. He was also a supporter of the infamous Bridge to Nowhere, an expensive, unnecessary infrastructure project in uh, Alaska. And Stevens was very pro-logging. But Stevens was originally, while Stevens was originally in denial about climate change, he became a supporter of the fight against climate change. And he was also pro-choice despite being Republican. So... <laughs> Do you have any sense of why the Department of Justice, under the George W. Bush administration, would test lawfare out on a Republican senator, Ted Stevens? Do you think the Republican Party was trying to get rid of one of their own? Why would they want to do that? Well, Chuck, um, 
from what we know, from what I know about it, I think that the operatives in the DOJ, which were uh, a lot of whom were based out of the southern region in New York, are connected to the corporate Democrats. You know, in this case, I, I, what from what we see, you know, so I, you know, I can't really speculate on the Ted Stevens case. I'm not an expert on it, and obviously, he's not someone who is, you know, politically or ideologically aligned with Lula. What I find interesting, though, is just that the tactics were almost identical, you know, and some of the same people were involved in that case that were involved in, op- in Operation Car Wash and Lava Jato. And so tactically, it's interesting, just as I noticed during the Robert Mueller investigation, which had some of the people who were working on Operation Lava Jato, Car Wash, like um, and, uh, Andrew Weissman and people like that on it. They were using similar tactics, not that that means that Trump isn't a giant piece of human garbage, scumbag, con artist, but the tactics they were using against them were similar. And it's, uh, for example, constant leaks to the media with information that later turns out to be not very accurate. So the media gets whipped up into this whole frenzy, you know, uh, like it did with Russiagate. You know, and then when the information actually comes out, there wasn't that much there. This is exactly what they did to, to Lula. And it's what ha- what's happened with other Latin American leaders uh, who were tied up in the same uh, Operation Car Wash, you know, like Michelle Bachelet in Chile, uh, even uh, Alan Garcia, who killed himself last week, was suffering from these kinds of constant media leaks, I mean, which kind of like overrides. Uh, innocent until declared guilty. If you're being accused of being guilty for two years while the investigation's ongoing in the media, so so I, I mentioned Ted Stevens in the book just because of the tactics. I don't think it's something that's necessarily. I, I don't. Know, I'm not a mind reader. I don't know what's going on inside of the deep state or the U.S. DOJ or FBI or anything like that. But I notice there's tactical similarity in a lot of what they're doing, and it's not very democratic. Much much less so in Latin America than in the U.S., where at least technically it's the U.S. government, it's people being paid, for, uh, whose salaries are paid by U.S. taxpayers investigating their own people. And it's really bizarre when you see this happening in foreign countries. It's an example of new imperialism. According to the way that the um, Department of Justice reinterpreted the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, starting you know around the time of the Enron case in 2002-2003, the U.S. FBI and DOJ now have the right to go into foreign countries and arrest people or collaborate with local judiciaries and prosecutors to have people arrested. And this stuff's happening all over the world now. You know, like I was in South Africa a couple weeks ago on this speaking tour, and I know that Jacob Zuma, there's a lot of criticism about Jacob Zuma, but I also learned that Students for Liberty, the Koch brothers-funded libertarian think tank, which was heavily involved in the protest against Lula and Dilma in Brazil, uh, you know, they, they fly young leaders up to the U.S. and train them on how to hold protests, how to use social media to organize corruption protests. They were operating, they started operating in South Africa like a year before Zuma was thrown out on corruption charges. And he, he was basically thrown out because of illegal reforms that took place on some vacation property of his. So it was it was kind of similar to Ted Stevens and and uh, and Lula, 
you know, not saying that, just as in Ted Stevens, not saying that he was some kind of paradigm of good governance or anything like that, but, the, you know, there were some things he were doing. He was considered to be farther left than a lot of other people within the ANC. So I, I just think that it's this kind of, as I mentioned in the title of the book, this is a kind of new imperialism. Anti-corruption investigations have been weaponized by the U.S., and are being used, it's like the new excuse to, to take down foreign leaders. And uh, maybe in some cases the leaders deserve to be taken down, in other cases they don't, but the U.S. shouldn't really have the right to be able to do it themselves. It's kind of an issue related to self-determination and sovereignty. The people of that, if there's a problem with a leader who's corrupt, the people of that country should take him out for it. The U.S. shouldn't become the world's anti-corruption policemen because all you have to do is scratch under the surface of Pentagon spending and the Iraq war and all of this, and you easily discover that in dollar terms, the U.S. is the most corrupt country in the world. So what does it care about corruption? It's targeting foreign companies, uh, foreign leaders to, to benefit U.S. corporations mostly. That's what it looks like, because the American corporations benefited tremendously from the ouster of Dilma Rousseff and the arrival of Jair Bolsonaro. Microsoft, Boeing, all of the oil companies like Chevron and Exxon are making a fortune off of this. I want to get back to something that you mentioned. You mentioned the Foreign Control Pract- Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Now, that's defined as a U.S. law prohibiting U.S. firms and individuals from paying bribes to foreign officials in furtherance of a business deal. How does a law meant to stop U.S. officials from bribing other nations, I mean, that sounds like a good way to stop corruption committed by the U.S. How does that lead to Operation Car Wash? Were U.S. companies at the heart of the corruption? Were they the ones who were causing the corruption? Was the United States investigating and trying to stop U.S. companies from corrupting Brazil? No, Chuck. Actually, there were a series of amendments to what was originally a good law made with the best intentions after the Watergate scandal. So that now it refers to any bribe that takes place anywhere in the world that that happens in dollars or any corrupt activity in which some kind of financial related financial transaction takes place within the United States. And so because of the multinational nature of capital flow these days and the fact that the dollar is the standard currency, it pretty much opens up for anywhere. Any country that signs this kind of partnership with the U.S., which is most countries, because when it was pushed through, it looked really innocuous. You know, they tried to use Operation Car Wash to take down Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, and Venezuela just said, basically, screw you guys. We're not party of this agreement, the FCPA. But you look at uh, Alan Garcia's uh, suicide last week. He was under investigation from a joint U.S. anti-corruption operation, Operation Car Wash. You know, so so it's being used to to kind of cherry-pick leaders who, for whatever reason, the U.S. doesn't like. I don't know what the deal was with Garcia. I'm not an uh, expert on Peru. I know he's not, he wasn't a very admirable leader and, you know, not comparable with, like, Lula or Michelle Bachelet or Christina Kirchner, who... Kirchner now leading all polls for the presidency in Argentina, also uh, at risk of being arrested before the elections began, just like what they did with Lula. So you see, 
it's it's really crazy. It's a new it's the new imperialism. You know, it's not just it's not just governments anymore. It's corporations and governments. It's not just the CIA. It's corporate intelligence companies, outsourced intelligence companies. The whole conjuncture has changed, but the results are the same. The U.S. corporations continue to uh, work with the U.S. government to enact regime change to benefit their own financial interests, as they have been doing since the late 1800s, at least, in Latin America. You write how on August 2nd, 2013, in an act designed to strengthen the fight against corruption in Brazil, President Dilma Rousseff sanctions Law 12850 which for the first time in Brazilian history enables plea bargain testimonies to be used as evidence in criminal proceedings. For the first time ever, Brazilian public prosecutors begin working with plea bargain testimonies before the state. Brazilian prosecutors had no experience building cases based on plea bargains. Is this then an indictment of the U.S. justice system and how the Department of Justice gets convictions in the U.S. as well as how they have influenced Brazilian justice officials to do to do so as well. Are, are, are you opposed to, do you think there's something inherently wrong with plea bargain testimonies? Look, I think that uh, the coerced plea bargain testimony made in exchange for partial asset retention and sentence reduction is highly problematic if it's the only piece of evidence used to indict somebody. Okay, I don't think I'm not against, for example, that evidence being admissible in court, but it should be qualified. This was this evidence, you know, this testimony was made. The jury should know that the testimony was made in exchange for sentence reduction and how much sentence reduction took place. But I'm not against it per se. What I'm against is it being used as the only evidence, you know, the only evidence. That's crazy because. You're talking about, you know, somebody who's already been arrested for being dishonest, <laughs> who's now uh, oftentimes changing the story until it's just right in order to get sentence reduced from like 30 years to one year of house arrest and, and to, be, to be able to keep millions of dollars. And this, this is what we saw in Brazil with these um, plea bargain testimonies. Now, let's keep in mind that Jair Bolsonaro is president now. Because the leading candidate who was polling at twice the amount of support that he was, Lula, was thrown in jail based on one coerced plea bargain testimony made by a corrupt businessman, convicted corrupt businessman, who in exchange for this testimony was able to keep tens of millions of dollars in bribe money and had his something like 30-year prison sentence reduced to time-served little bit of house arrest, almost nothing, okay? And he changed his story three times before they gave him the deal. And so something is, is highly wrong in that scenario, because basically you're just blackmailing people until they, until they say what you want them to say, until they read off your script, and then they get this deal. You know, so it's, it's really bribery if you're telling someone they can keep $10 million of bribe money if they say you know, if they tell their story in this certain way. And so I, I, I think that in order to convict someone, plea bargain testimony should be acceptable evidence, but the jury should know it was coerced. And uh, there should be also material evidence so that people can triangulate and, and, 
and, and not base it entirely on one person's word against another's. Was this a popular, to what extent was this a popular coup? How well was the public, how much were they convinced of Dilma's guilt, of Lula's guilt, before they even were proven innocent, or at least Dilma was proven innocent? Yeah. Well, the, um, the country is heavily polarized right now, so it's about 50-50. Yeah, about 50% thought Dilma, erroneously thought that Dilma was guilty of something because of years of illegal leaks to the media, including a illegally taped telephone conversation between Dilma Rousseff and Lula that was taped by Sergio Moro, the judge who uh, prosecuted and investigated and ruled on his own prosecution against Lula, which he recorded and leaked to the major television stations that was broadcast over the air that didn't prove any crime committed, but showed the two of them using swear words. I mean, that's an example of the kind of character assassination that was committed illegally against Dilma Rousseff for years before she was impeached. And then it came out she hadn't committed any crime at all, not even the infraction that she was impeached over, which was legalized the day after her impeachment by the Senate. It was, she was exonerated from that subsequently as well. So I, I think the fact that a large percent of, of the population believed she was guilty of something is a damning indictment of the way that the media collaborates with regime change. Why? You just talk to any American liberal now. Like I've got relatives and stuff who, who just go through the roof if I suggest that P- Putin didn't throw the elections to Trump, <laughs> you know? because of so much misinformation in the media. Why do you see Bolsonaro as a neo-fascist? What is the likelihood that U.S. support from him would continue under a U.S. president who is from the Democratic Party? It depends on the Democrat. I, I could see someone like Joe Biden kind of like making some angry, scolding-type comments and continuing to work with Bolsonaro. I could see that, <laughs> you know? Because you know what it's like with the Democrats. It's like lip service. They pay lip service to human rights, but they have no qualms supporting massive human rights violations around the world as long as the people use the right kind of language. So I could see support continuing with Biden. I I could not see the same kind of support continuing for Bolsonaro if Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Tulsi Gabbard or one of these more progressive Democrats was elected. But why is like an example of why? Bolsonaro is a neo-fascist. Really, I, I refer to him as a client fascist or a sub-fascist, according to Noam Chomsky's definition of the term in the 1970s, which he created to describe these military dictatorships in Latin America back then. Because unlike Hitler, for example, um, he's, he's not uh, trying to take over the world. He's, he's created an internal enemy, which he wants to wipe out at the service of another imperialist power, which is the U.S. So he's like a sub to the U.S., the U.S. domination, but he's a, he's a fascist. And an example of fascism, is, I could give you a hundred, but here's the most recent one. Uh, the other day, he signed a presidential decree uh, eliminating all funding for, the, for study of sociology social sciences and philosophy in the public university system, which implies that it's going to be wiped out of the high school curriculum as well. Currently, all high school students are 
required to study philosophy and social sciences for all three years of Brazilian high school. These, these two subjects were outlawed during the past military dictatorship in 1971. They outlawed sociology. You know, so, so this is a, a clear example of how they're trying to incrementally uh, push towards fascism in this country. You write violent, incompetent, and corrupt. The wager is now how long Bolsonaro's imbecilic spectacle can last. Self-destruction ahead of schedule is the best hope Brazil's progressives, minorities, even majorities have. How is that self-destruction going? Because the New York Times had an article on April 14th headlined, Bolsonaro's popularity sinks after a rocky 100 days in office. That story started like this. I wasn't born to be president, Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro said during a recent address at his official residence. I was born to be a soldier. The Times continues, the tone used by Mr. Bolsonaro, a former army captain, was lighthearted, but the message underscored how turbulent his first few months as president have been in just over 100 days in office. He has used up much of his political capital with little progress on crucial issues to show for it. Brazilians are growing impatient. So how is Bolsonaro's self-destruction progressing? Well, if you'd asked me this a month ago or something, I would have said I, I was thinking he was going to be out in a couple months. But he, his visit to CIA headquarters in Langley, along with his Justice Minister Sergio Moro, who is the guy who arrested, who investigated and then ruled on his own investigation and put Lula in jail. They both visited CIA headquarters in Langley. It was widely interpreted, and this is the first time a Brazilian president has ever done that. And he had not even met with Brazilian intelligence at that point yet. Okay? So that was interpreted in Brazil as a kind of message that he was sending out to people who were trying to take him out within his own coalition that he has backing from the U.S. So I don't know if, at this point, there's all kinds of indications that he might fall. But the real thing that international capital is worried about is pushing through the retirement pension reforms, which they're trying to turn over management of to private capital and, uh, and reduce the monthly payments to half minimum salary so that, and raise the retirement age so that people are forced to... Um, you know, get their own private retirement plans from private banks, which would generate a lot of money. So that's the big thing. That's the big uh, push that's going on right now. And in a way, I mean, some people are saying that that all of these gaffes that Bolsonaro and his cronies are making, all of these embarrassing public statements, is just a kind of hybrid war technique to keep the left confused so that they can push through this pension reforms. If they manage to push through this pension reforms, I don't see Bolsonaro falling. I see the media making a lot of money off of daily articles about Bolsonaro's stupid tweets, you know, and, and people wringing their hands about how bad he is and then him making it out through the whole term, just like Trump. Because this seems to be almost like the new normal now, <laughs> you know, because like, everyone thought Trump was going to fall, too, in the first couple months. You mentioned a new corruption scandal, Bolsogate. What is Bolsogate, and does it have the potential of taking the Bolsonaro government down? If there was a functioning rule of law, it would. It's the, the Bolsonaro's son, Flavio, right? Uh, it's come out. Okay, so you know about Marielle Franco, the wonderful 
Rio de Janeiro socialist city councilwoman who was assassinated last year. Right. Um, and all the evidence is pointing towards these kinds of um, right-wing paramilitary militias, which have wrested control of many of Rio's favelas from the drug trafficking gangs, where they operate extortion rackets and, uh, and implement their own very brutal form of justice, shooting people for smoking marijuana and stuff. And so all evidence is pointing that she was a major enemy of these militias. And, um, and of police brutality. And the evidence is that this militia called the Escritura do Crime carried out the assassination against her. So after that came out, it came out that the leader of the Escritura do Crime militia, both his mother and wife, worked for over 10 years in Jair Bolsonaro's son Flavio's state congressional cabinet. And that another member of his cabinet was busted laundering massive amounts of money, passing it back and forth. And he, uh, there were ghost employees on the payroll who were passing 90% of their salaries to this one guy who was also connected to militias. And he was making these account, uh, transfers to Jair Bolsonaro's wife and to his son, Flavio. Okay, and so, so this guy's kind of like disappeared, who they were uh, uh, they're trying to bring in to testify. The whole case is being softened by, by this supposed anti-corruption hero, Sergio Moro, who's now justice minister. He's, he's protecting the militias now. And so they, they finally arrested the gunmen being accused of killing Marielle Franco. And one of them lived two doors down from Jair Bolsonaro in this gated luxury community. And he's a retired police officer who would never be able to afford something like that if he was working legitimately. And then it came out that Bolsonaro's other son, Carlos, used to date this guy's daughter. And there are photos on the internet of Bolsonaro at barbecues with this guy and with the other gunman and things like that. So it's actually a pretty big scandal to think that even if Jair Bolsonaro didn't know about Marielle Franco's killing, you know, he's associated, and his son's definitely associated with the killers on a regular basis. You know, so it's it's a pretty big scandal, actually, because there's bank account. It's not just something that's relied on plea bargain testimony. There's bank records of money laundering and uh, computer hard drives showing that the gunmen were doing all this research on Marielle. And when they seized this guy's hard drive, they also found out he was doing all of this similar research on a worker from Amnesty International, who actually used to be my assistant when I was at ActionAid. And two people from an NGO inside of Mare Favela, where Marielle Franco was from. So this this should be a giant scandal and just uh, kind of being buried now, kind of being put put buried internationally because all of the big newspapers are really super interested in these pension reforms going through. So they're kind of like backing down a little bit on this. The Intercept is still on it because of Glenn Greenwald and things. You know, Glenn was friends with Marielle Franco. But the other, a lot of the other big international papers aren't really – they're downplaying it. They're not really talking about it much. So, Brian, explain to me, why did the Dead Kennedys cancel their Brazil tour? <laughs> okay. Well, <clears throat> I was shocked. I don't know if you remember if you ever went to a Dead Kennedys show, but I, went, I saw them in the Metro in 1984. And it was one of the best shows I ever saw in my life. And I you know, stopped listening to them 30 years ago or whatever. So they they're doing this tour, they were going to do this tour here and they launched this tour poster 
that was amazing. It looked like the dead Kennedys at the height of their powers. It's a family of clowns in Brazil national football team jerseys where instead of the Brazilian flag, it's a cross. The child clowns are holding automatic weapons and they're standing in front of a burning favela with tanks running under it. And one of them saying, I love the smell of poor dad in the morning. Okay, so this poster went viral in Brazil. It went completely viral. And then all of the Bolsa minions, which is what we call the people who support Bolsonaro, started giving them death threats, threatening to go and shoot up the venues where the concerts were going on. And a day later, like their tour manager said, oh, well, this poster doesn't necessarily reflect the political views of the dead Kennedys. You know, it was made by another artist. And so now uh, a lot of people are like super disappointed with the dead Kennedys because it looked like the old dead Kennedys, you know? And so, and then they, they decided to cancel their tour. And now they've said that they actually really liked the poster when they saw it and they authorized it, but they weren't expecting this kind of super fascist reaction. So that some people are speculating that they received death threats from one of these militias, you know? So I, it's an interesting story, you know? We have been speaking with editor and correspondent Brian Muir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. It's a collection of interviews with people on the left that are being ignored in the global north and Western media. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program From the South. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. Find Brazil Wire online at brazilwire.com and telesur english at telesurenglish.net one last question for you brian and it's the question from hell question we hate to ask you but hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response i usually don't ask you one but i want to do it this time (laughs) you write some are betting that sooner or later the military will simply take over what is more likely in your opinion the military taking over uh bolsonaro imploding or even Lula or a Lula supporter from his own party being the next president? Uh, okay, well, it's the, the Bolsonaro government is imploding and the military is taking over. The question is, will he remain as a puppet or not? And the, the odds of Lula taking power back or someone else from the left are unfortunately very low right now. But the military would be better than Bolsonaro I hate to say it. I really hate to say this, but it's because Bolsonaro's sons are chumming it up with Steve Bannon and the international alt-right. And if they're taken out of the picture, the military will just be old school, regular fascist without as much racism. Ah, that old school fascism. I wax nostalgic for it every day, Brian. (laughs) Yeah. Great to have you back on the show, sir. Good luck with your book. It really is a fantastic read, and everybody who is listening right now should order a copy of it. Thank you so much for being back on the show, Brian, and I'll be bugging you in the future. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Take it easy. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Killing by police with impunity has become normalized in Brazil. But don't blame just a few bad apples. The problem is policing and the police trying to enforce racist colonialism and impose unfair capitalism on a people who have been consistently devastated by both. We'll learn how U.S. colonialism has normalized murder by police in Puerto Rico when we talk to Mexican-American and Latina, Latino studies scholar Marisol Lebron, author of Policing, Life and Death, Race, Violence and and Resistance in Puerto Rico. Marisol is 
professor in the department at in the department of uh, sorry I keep making this mistake Marisol is a professor in the department of Mexican American and Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin you can find out more about Marisol at marisollebron.com it's time for nasty gnarly nauseous naughty nerdy icky drippy sticky goopy gloppy globby Gory rotten history. In 1521, 498 years ago, the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan was killed in battle with indigenous people in the South Pacific, and I'm guessing we'll find out Magellan deserved it. Sponsored by the Spanish Crown, see, I told you he deserved it, Magellan had led an expedition of five ships and 250 men around South America to reach the Spice Islands, now known as Indonesia, and they made it as far as the Philippines. And by the way, naming islands after the product they have that you'd like to exploit should have given the natives a heads up on how much the Spanish were a friggin' virus. After persuading one local chieftain there to convert to Christianity and become a Spanish subject, Magellan backed him in a territorial dispute. He was confident that cannons and muskets would give his crew the advantage, but they were soon overwhelmed by the locals, and Magellan was taken out with a poison arrow at the age of 41. Most of his crewmen were also killed, but a few escaped in two ships and finally made it to the Spice Islands, where they loaded their cargo holds with cloves and cinnamon, which in Europe at that time were more valuable than gold. They continued west around Asia and Africa, enduring further crises and hardships. When they arrived back in Spain after three years away, they were down to 19 exhausted men aboard one battered vessel, having completed the first known circumnavigation of the planet. Big deal. You lose four ships and 231 men. That's worth some cinnamon and cloves, right? Ah, the era of discovery and exploitation was a wonderful time of killing and pillaging. No wonder we celebrate it so with things like Columbus Day. Nothing really makes you as proud of Western civilization or being Italian as genocide for profit. In Rotten History, 1578, 441 years ago, against the backdrop of a power struggle between the French king, Henry III, and his brother, the Duke of Guise, G-U-I-S-E, as in disguise, a traditional duel between two second-tier courtiers, known as minions, got out of control. And you know when minions get out of control... Hilarity ensues. The minions, and right now I am hating Universal Pictures and corporate media and advertising and merchandising of animated movie characters because I can't get the image of the movie Minions out of my freaking head. And I've never even seen the movie. I've just seen the commercials. The minions were widely despised and ridiculed by the French citizenry for their extravagant dress and arrogant manner and also for sucking up to the royal family, wearing makeup and supposedly indulging in kinky sex just like the ones in the movie, at least the Minions movie I saw, which was a porn parody of the original. But they were also jealous, hardened war veterans with a propensity to violence, which is also true of the minions in the movie. Those freaks love the ultraviolence. One of the Duke's men, a certain Charles de Balzac, had taken offense when Jacques de Levy, a minion of the king, had the nerve to accuse him of consorting with unchaste women, 
which is weird because I often brag about consorting with unchaste women. The challenge was made, and the dueling parties chose their seconds, men designated to act as witnesses and referees. All parties met at 5 a.m. in a horse market north of the Seine River, but no sooner had the duel begun than the seconds joined in, emptying the benches, so to speak, until everyone was hacking at each other with swords and daggers. Two men were killed on the spot while a third was wounded. When died the next day, a fourth man survived the fighting but was disfigured for or for life with an open gash through his head. Jacques de Lévy, the king's minion, realized too late that he'd forgotten to bring his dagger and was forced to fight only with a sword. Balzac hacked at him ferociously, stabbing him 19 times and putting him in the hospital where he would lie in agony for a month before dying of his wounds. As for Balzac himself, the original offended party, he was the only one to survive serious injury, or avoid serious injury, and would live for another 21 years. News of the so-called Duel of the Minions was greeted with disgust by the French public, and it was denounced by prominent intellectuals, including the essayist Michel de Matagne, who called it an image of cowardice, and the poet Jean Passerat, who referred to it as the Day of the Pigs. Again, the similarities are remarkable, because the minions in the movie are known off-screen for their cowardly piggishness. Who knows? Maybe the characters in the movie are glorification and homage to those French jags who hacked each other to death. Seems about right for Universal Pictures. In Rotten History 1937, 82 years ago, the Marxist philosopher Antonio Gramsci Gramsci former leader of the Italian Communist Party died in prison because that's where former leaders of Communist parties tend to die, prison. Gramsci's arrest had been ordered 11 years earlier by Mussolini's fascist government in spite of Gramsci's legal immunity as a member of the Italian parliament. And I seriously doubt things like the law got in Il Duce's way when he wanted to kill somebody. I mean, what self-respecting fascist would obey the law? During his incarceration, writing in what be would become known as his prison notebooks, Gramsci had offered a distinctive take on Marxist theory best known for his concept of cultural hegemony, in which the ruling classes use their control of the popular culture to promote their own ideology among the broad citizenry, thus manufacturing consent and enforcing the status quo. So apparently Gramsci would be a Patreon subscriber to This Is Hell if he hadn't died nearly 60 years before our first broadcast. But the uh, years in prison had taken a heavy toll on Gramsci's health. He suffered from tuberculosis, heart disease, high blood pressure, digestive failure, violent headaches, other problems. Could no longer eat solid food. And you know non-solid food in an Italian 1930s prison was not good. I mean, this is before pudding and jello, for God's sake. After a long campaign by supporters from around the world demanding his release, Gramsci's sentence was finally commuted, but on the day he was scheduled to go free, doctors pronounced him too sick to be moved. He died a week later at the age of 46. Which makes you wonder, how sick do you have to be to not leave prison? I mean, if I was in prison, I don't care how sick I am or how poorly I'm feeling, I'm getting out of stir. That's Rotten History and This Is Hell coming up on this week's This Is Hell. Deadly policing has become normalized in Puerto Rico, all thanks to U.S. colonialism. The opioid crisis was driven by racism, but you're not going to hear that from the president or the media. Private equity, not innovative disruptors like Amazon, are destroying bricks-and-mortar retail grocery stores across the U.S. During the moment of truth, Jeff complains intersectionally. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been doing on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow Hacker, Psychedelic Warlord, who you may know as Beto O'Rourke. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and others for supporting the show at thisishell.com when they click on 
support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of the show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Deadly policing has become normalized in Puerto Rico. But it's not a problem of a few bad apples. It's the outcome of U.S. colonialism. Here to help us understand punitive governance and how it punished the Puerto Rican people and continues to punish them, Mexican-American and Latina Latino studies scholar Marisol LeBron is author of Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence, and Resistance in Puerto Rico. Welcome to This is Hell, Marisol. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Marisol is assistant professor of Mexican-American and Latina, Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Find out more about her at her website, MarisolLeBron.com. And one other thing, Marisol is co-founder of Puerto Rico Syllabus, which provides a list of resources for teaching and learning about the current economic crisis in Puerto Rico. If there are any educators who are listening right now, you can find out more by going to PuertoRicoSyllabus.com. Our next guest following you, Marisol, will be the historian Donna Murch, who returns to This Is Hell to discuss racial capitalism and the opioid uh, epidemic. You mentioned uh, Donna and her work on racial capitalism in your book. How do you define racial capitalism within the context of what is taking place in Puerto Rico and what you call their punitive governance? How do you see racial capitalism taking place? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think racial capitalism, you know, I learned this from folks like Donna, um, you know, working with Ruthie Gilmore, reading Cedric Robinson. And the thing that's key for us to keep in mind is that uh, capitalism is always racialized. Capitalism functions through racial differentiation, right? Um, So it's not that it's a special kind of capitalism, right? Racial capitalism is what capitalism is. So I think that's the first thing that's really um, central to kind of, um, you know, grasp onto. In terms of how we see it functioning in Puerto Rico, we see it functioning in a couple of scales. Um, First, we see kind of a form of racial capitalism that is uh, crafted through the U.S. colonial relationship, right, which um, allows for colonization to happen as a racial process, right, that colonialism is about uh, taking control of Puerto Rico, bestowing them with U.S. democracy because they can't do it on their own, right? They are incapable of governing themselves, right? So this becomes a central trope that is very much racialized um, that is about um, justifying kind of continue the endurance of U.S. colonialism in Puerto Rico. The second kind of scale that we see it operating at in terms of how racial capitalism is functioning in Puerto Rico is at a more local scale, right, where we see a kind of um, uh, racial hierarchy being established, right, that is very much rooted, much like in the U.S., um, but kind of comes about in a little bit of a different way, um, very much rooted in white supremacy and anti-Black racism, right? And so the way that I track that in the book is actually looking at how policing becomes a force for um, reinforcing that hierarchy, reproducing that hierarchy, but also being the thing that makes that racial hierarchy um, real in people's everyday lives, right? And this has to do with the fact that 
Puerto Rico, much like many other uh, Latin American and Caribbean um, contexts, considers itself um, to be distinct from the U.S., right, to function more as a racial democracy, right? So we have a um, discourse of racial mixing, of mestizaje, right, which um, differentiates itself from the kinds of racial violence and animus that is present in the U.S., right? So it's not a one-drop rule around race, right? There's a, a, a kind of acceptance of a spectrum of racial mixing, but despite that racial mixing, we know that uh, uh, black folks, right, and darker-skinned folks end up on the bottom of the racial hierarchy that is at work in, in Puerto Rico. So what I track in the book is the way that policing functions to reinforce that hierarchy and really the way it functions as a mechanism for controlling what are the effects of colonial and capitalist crisis in Puerto Rico, which impacts those populations which are already incredibly vulnerable and um, sensitive to economic and political dislocations, right, which coincide with race and class, right? So tend to be folks who are darkest skinned or Afro-Puerto Rican um, and folks who are working or um, working class or poor. Without getting into tragedy or violence porn, I want to talk about the level of violence that uh, Puerto Ricans are experiencing right now from the police. You write how on the morning of January 31st, 2012, you met with local activist Giovanni Roberto at La Chiwina, I guess, a small small cafe a few blocks away from the University of Puerto Rico's main campus in the Rio Piedras area of San Juan. Over a few cups of tea, he told me about his role in the student mobilizations that had shut down the university system for much of the 2010 and 2011 academic years. And we have a correspondent in Puerto Rico who covered that for us. Uh, you write mm-hmm. how uh, Roberto explained the social, political, and economic context that drove students to strike for a more equitable and accessible educational system, as well as the incredible violence that students experienced at the hands of police and private security forces determined to restore order to the campus. How bad mm-hmm. was the police violence? How disorderly was their attempt to restore order? I mean, during the, the strikes of 2010 and 11 at the UPR, I mean, the violence was tremendous. Um, it, it, it was captured uh, very widely um, on lots of different forms of media. So kind of traditional uh, mainstream kind of news outlets in, in Puerto Rico, as well as kind of U.S.-based ones that had sent correspondents out there. But I mean, the circulation of those images of brutality and violence on, on social media was tremendous. And in many ways is what kind of prompted um, a a huge kind of citizen outcry against what was happening, right? And so we see that after essentially months of the police being stationed on campus in order to restore order, all that was happening was that there were nearly daily clashes between students and police, often prompted by the police, right? The police were the key kind of generators of violence on campus um, and and in this effort to reopen the campus and to tamp down on the student protest. Um, what's interesting about the UPR case is that it tends to get a lot more attention um, and a lot uh, generate a lot more outrage from folks in a lot of ways, precisely because they were students. So we see this kind of um, hierarchy of value, which I think we, you know, has become quite familiar 
emerge in the context of the student protests where uh, the forms, I make an argument in the book that the kinds of violence that we see happening at the University of Puerto Rico were in many ways forms of violence that have become quite common and routine in low-income and predominantly uh, Black communities in Puerto Rico, but had not gained much attention. So the UPR strike is really interesting in that it puts on display, I think, um, in a major way, forms of violence that were largely hidden as a result of things like racial segregation and spatial segregation, but also through a normalization of violence as being acceptable when it's happening in public housing, in Black communities, and in low-income communities, because it had been justified through this kind of extremely punitive policing that said, you know, poor folks are all, and Black folks are all somehow involved with the drug economy, right? And the drug economy is what is, is taking root in public housing, and so the police have every right to go into public housing and do what they need to do. And if that means violence, that's fine, right? Because that's what keeps the rest of us safe. That was a, a lot of the ways in which the violence was justified. And so I think for a lot of folks, when they were seeing this violence uh, against students, that became uh, a context and a population uh, that, that that violence was not acceptable when it was kind of exacted against them. So I think one of the things that's really interesting is if we zoom out from the UPR protest, we can kind of see some of the ways in which that technology that was deployed against um, uh, UPR students and protesters and supporters is actually incredibly routine and normalized. It's not this kind of spectacular and shocking uh, form of violence. Um, it's it's more quotidian than that. That doesn't mean it's not insidious and doesn't need to be eradicated. But I think people's reactions to what what happens when um, it's happening at the UPR versus when it's happening at Llorentores, uh, the largest public housing complex in Puerto Rico, is really striking and tells us a lot about how police violence has been normalized and accepted and, in fact, encouraged when it's uh, uh, targeting particular populations who are seen as causing, who are seen as the root of Puerto Rico's problems, right? So who are seen as um, displacing kind of the colonial um, and economic roots of Puerto Rico's problems. So the kind of more intensification of policing happened under the excuse or rationale that uh, Puerto Rico was ex experiencing a horrible drug problem. How bad mm -hmm. was the drug problem? Because I'm trying to determine how much the reaction was disproportionate or was the problem just so severe that something had to be done and when the police do something about it, they often turn violent. Yeah, so I mean, one of the things I tell folks is that you were just talking about Gramsci before, right? I think there's a way in which the the government seizes on to a kind of popular discourse and narrative around a fear of crime, right? And I think we see that happen in Puerto Rico, where policies that would not have been previously allowed get a pass because people are living in fear, right? That's to say, I don't think that people's fear was completely unwarranted, right? We do see a tremendous spike in um, violence in Puerto Rico during the 1990s, which is the period that I, I focus on a lot in the book. I focus on the 1990s and its kind of 
uh, aftermath in the contemporary or in the present moment, right? And so people were scared. I mean, carjackings were um, rampant, kind of there's an increase in the drug-based informal economy that has to do with kind of um, a balloon effect that gets created as um, previous um, uh, kind of pathways for the entrance of narcotics into the United States get closed off. So such as like Miami and the kind of um, the border regions, right? Those get closed off. And so we start to see a traffic through the Caribbean increase in drugs. And that actually results in a lot of drugs um, coming through Puerto Rico and some staying put, right? And so creating kind of uh, greater rates of, of drug-related violence and addiction and things like that happening. So the violence was very real, right? And so one of the things that becomes kind of common is you hear people talking about putting their mattresses on the floor because they were scared of bullets coming through their windows, particularly in, in, in public housing, right? Or people... Um, changing the entire routines of their lives, right, in order to um, predict and kind of attempt to escape violence, right? So that was very much what people were feeling and what was happening. And I think what I try to talk about in the book is that the only solution on offer to people who were feeling very insecure and very fearful of the kinds of uh, things that were happening in Puerto Rico was policing, right? It became the only state-sanctioned solution on offer to people who were scared, um, scared for themselves, scared for their communities, scared for what that meant for the future. And so I try to talk about wh what some of the other ways of responding to that crisis could have been, as well as why policing became um, the only thing on offer. And so what I talk about is that in many ways, colonialism is part of what constrained the solutions and made policing the only thing on offer because the Puerto Rican government can't alter the economic, social, or political conditions in a meaningful way because of the constraints of uh, the colonial relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico. So in a lot of ways, all they could do was say, we can put more police on the street, we can act um, to try to control some of these problems, but rather than identifying what the actual kind of roots of the problem were, which were colonial capitalism, right? They pointed to low-income folks um, who were in areas where drug trafficking and violence had kind of increased and said there must be a correlation between these low-income folks and the kind of violence being generated in these areas. And so that's who we need to target. And so what I track in the book is this one policing measure called Mano Duda Contra Crimen, which uh, translates to Iron Fist Against Crime. And it basically activates the, the, deploys the police and activates the National Guard in order to raid and occupy public housing complexes all around Puerto Rico um, for days, weeks, months at a time um, under the auspices of eradicating drug violence in Puerto Rico. Um, and so we see that the placing of uh, military and police forces in public housing made people feel like something was being done. It seemed like a very dramatic gesture towards um, dealing with um, drug dealing and the crime problem. But what we see is that it actually, in a lot of ways, increases violence, right? We see a rise in kind of state-sanctioned and police violence um, and harassment and intimidation, 
Um, and it creates pressure on the drug economy that actually resulted in more homicides, right? As drug dealers were forced to um, compete um, under kind of scarcer conditions, right? Um, and, and, and more pressure. So we see that these kind of punitive solutions are the only thing on offer, but they don't really result in a decrease in levels of crime. They don't actually make people feel that much safer, but they do project a very strong image of the state that it's capable and that it's doing something, right? And I think that image of a strong and capable state is part of what the Puerto Rican government was trying to project in the face of a colonial and capitalist relationship that in many ways hobbled it, right? It made it incapable of actually addressing the things that made people feel insecure in their communities every day. And you point out how whatever drug crime there is there, whatever informal economy there is around drugs, is due to poor development uh, policies by the United States following World War II and uh, beginning with their uh, territorial, Commonwealth territorial uh, designation by the United States. So um, how did poor development policies by the United States, how did colonialism actually bring about the problem that the government of uh, Puerto Rico is over-exaggerating when it comes to drug crime? Yeah, so what we see is that essentially... There's this thing in the 1950s called Operation Bootstrap, right? And Operation Bootstrap is this uh, industrialization. It's called industrialization by invitation, right? So essentially what happens is Puerto Rico is becomes a kind of tax haven or uh, almost like an incubator for industrial capital during the 1950s. And so all of these um, factories are invited to Puerto Rico to open, um, they're they're given incredible incentives, right, and including kind of tax incentives to open uh, factories in Puerto Rico, right? And so this becomes a kind of model for development around the global South or third world, right? This beca- the, it becomes known as the Puerto Rican miracle. So Puerto Rico goes from being the so-called poorhouse of the Caribbean to the U.S.'s shining star in the Caribbean. So we see this tremendous kind of economic growth and expansion over the course of the 1950s and 60s. Part of why Operation Bootstrap is so incredibly successful, however, is not because of the rapid industrialization, but because there's a massive displacement of the Puerto Rican population, right? And so what we see is that Operation Bootstrap is accompanied by two things. One is a massive um, incentive program for Puerto Ricans to migrate to the U.S. to work um, in the kind of industrial North and Midwest, right? Um, But then also um, a a number of uh, population control measures that are instituted, including um, widespread sterilization of Puerto Rican women um, through tubal ligation. So we see that there's an effort to kind of curb um, population growth. There's an effort to kind of export dissent, right? And so it looks like Operation Bootstrap is this tremendously successful program and one to be replicated. By the time we hit the 1970s, in particular, 1973 becomes this kind of turning point where, along with kind of the the beginning of economic crisis in the U.S., the devaluation of the dollar, the OPEC crisis, all of this stuff hits Puerto Rico and. It, it becomes almost insurmountable for Puerto Rico to bounce back. And it really reveals the ways in which 
um, Operation Bootstrap was not as successful in controlling or growing the economy, right? It becomes a kind of falsely inflated economy. So by the time the 1970s roll around, we start to see um, unemployment just grow to astronomical numbers. We start to see uh, a decrease in labor force participation rates. All of that stuff happens. In the 1990 or in the 1980s, then we start to see a, a serious growth and expansion of the informal drug economy, essentially because the U.S. and Puerto Rican governments are unable to figure out essentially what's going to come after Operation Bootstrap. So by the 1970s, Operation Bootstrap fails. There has not been a new development plan really in a meaningful way put into place, or at least one that can actually produce kind of uh, economic and, and, and social kind of expansion and growth. And so we start to see that the illegal drug economy starts to fill that role that these U.S.-led development um, schemes had kind of led in the past, right? And so those folks who had been pushed out of the formal economy find a foothold in the informal economy. And it is a lot of people who have been kind of excised or pushed out of the formal economy, um, particularly uh, among the most economically and socially marginalized Puerto Ricans. Um, that becomes a space, right, where they can kind of um, reinsert themselves into an economic order. And so we see that there's this massive expansion in the 1980s of the drug economy, and it's in many ways very closely tied to the inability of the Puerto Rican and federal governments to figure out what to do and to um, create new development opportunities, right? Um, The Puerto Rican government remains, again, constrained because of this this relationship that it has with the U.S. Um, And so in many ways, they're kind of just treading water and the formal economy comes in and and outpaces it. it outpaces the formal economy in, in in many ways and in particular in kind of creating a seeming stability where 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 it's not right in terms of keeping the informal economy is part of what keeps the the economy afloat in Puerto Rico or at least what keeps the crisis from appearing as bad as it as it actually is in Puerto Rico. So Operation Bootstrap was a failure, even though you said it was because it was working at the very beginning. It was repeated in other Latin American countries. Has the U.S. learned from that poor development policy decision? Have they changed the way in which they do, uh, in which they make development policies? Because the de- development policy, as you describe it, when it was employed against uh, Puerto Rico, uh, seems to be very much a monoculture that is very dependent upon mm-hmm. the United States and shifts from one of manufacturing to one of high tech and a reg- it just keeps changing over and over again. So have has the United States learned from and changed their development policies in Latin America now that they have seen that it has failed in Puerto Rico? Uh, absolutely not. No. <laughs> so... So what we see, you're 100% right, is that it becomes this kind of model that is seen as as a success that can be widely replicated throughout Latin America. We see it also through um, throughout Asia and Africa as a kind of industrialization model. So the clearest kind of uh, example for a lot of people is going to be kind of NAFTA, right? NAFTA is essentially the same kind of um, maquila or, or factory kind of based um, 
industrialization, uh, you know, free enterprise zones that is essentially what Operation Bootstrap had created in Puerto Rico. And so by the time NAFTA comes around, that's really the death knell, I, I argue in the book, for Puerto Rico's special relationship with the U.S., right? Everything that had made Puerto Rico kind of economically um, unique, right, essentially gets replicated elsewhere, right, throughout Southeast Asia, along the border regions, other parts of Latin America, right? And so there becomes no way as capital continues to search for lower uh, wage labor and greater uh, profits, less regulation, that Puerto Rico can compete, right, precisely because um, as a U.S. territory, right, it's subject to federal minimum wage laws, to certain kinds of environmental protections, right, although those, of course, get kind of skirted around in a certain way because of that colonial relationship, but they're still subject to it, right? And so we see the capital, uh, U.S. capital, but international capital starts to search for cheaper uh, places, places that are more pollutable, and that ends up making Puerto Rico not a desirable kind of investment scheme or or place, right? And so so it's this irony of Operation Bootstrap where it's this incredible it's seen as and touted as the U.S., particularly as we think about it as a Cold War in the Cold War moment, as like this is what alignment with U.S. capital and and politics can get you is this incredible rapid growth, right? Economic growth, and then we see that model gets replicated and Puerto Rico gets left behind as a result. But one of the things that we see is that it it becomes that the U.S. and and Puerto Rican governments just like keep kind of. Uh, it's like a boat with a lot of leaks and they just keep trying to stick a finger in the leak and then a new one kind of springs up, right? So we see these kind of um, half-hearted attempts to uh, figure out some new kind of economic trend. And essentially that's what gets us to um, the current situation that Puerto Rico is in with the debt crisis, right? Where Puerto Rico has not been able to kind of fully recover um, and has not figured out And it really can't have its own kind of um, freestanding economic situation, right? And so it relies constantly on U.S.-based capital and is always trying to attract U.S.-based capital uh, to the archipelago. And so it tries that, and it tries that until we get this form of debt that is uh, these triple tax-exempt bonds and things like all of these kind of financial mechanism, Wall Street financial mechanisms that are in, intended to in, to entice and lure uh, U.S.-based, um, you know, capital to, to Puerto Rico, and it decimates, the, it crashes the entire economy, right? Um, there's no, there's no there there, and that's what becomes the issue, is that when the development model collapses, as it was really, there's there was no other outcome for it. As it collapses, there's nothing else there to to really supplant it, and there's nothing there that's about kind of building up a local kind of more sovereign uh, economy because the relation the colonial relationship can't allow that, right? Because the colonial relationship is precisely about using Puerto Rico to maximize U.S. profits, right? Or as a as a a landing pad for military, right, in the Caribbean, as a base for the military in the Caribbean, right? It's about maximizing U.S. use value of Puerto Rico, which allow, which 
means that Puerto Ricans are kind of getting the short end of the stick there. So, wait, uh, did NAFTA lead to Puerto Rico becoming bankrupt? Did NAFTA cause Puerto Rico's bankruptcy? And is it all fixed now that President Trump has made the new NAFTA? (laughs) No, I mean, I think, you know, NAFTA was already there. That was, you know, Puerto Rico's decline, economic decline was a, a death foretold in a lot of ways, right? And NAFTA just becomes kind of, this moment, you know, so what I show in the book is that NAFTA becomes this moment where Puerto Rico's like, we can't compete with these other, with like Mexico and these other kind of sites, new emerging sites of, of kind of U.S. capital investment in the same way, because we're not seen as equally exploitable in the same way. And I think they're very, like, you know, you look at what kind of politicians were saying and, and technocrats were kind of saying in that moment, they're like, we can't compete with Mexico in terms of kind of cheap labor or incentives or all of those kind of things. So what I look at in the book is actually the in the NAFTA moment in the 1990s is when we start to see Puerto Rico experimenting with um, with these kind of p- really punitive policing measures, right? And you, we see Puerto Rico try to pivot in this moment um, to make itself a kind of innovator in the realms of policing and privatization and particularly privatization of public housing. Right. And so Puerto Rico really starts to emerge in the 1990s as a kind of neoliberal innovator. And one of the things that I argue is that the reason why it starts to emerge and make this kind of pivot um, towards uh, privatization of public housing and policing is because they don't know what else to do to make themselves uh appear still useful to the U.S., right? Because during this moment in the 1990s, there's a, a, a kind of reassertion of, an, of a kind of um, annexationist movement um, or, the, or a kind of reinvigoration, rather, of, a, of an annexationist pro-statehood movement, right, where statehood becomes seen as the solution to a lot of these economic crises um, because that kind of colonial relationship will will change in some way, right? And some of these uh, economic irregularities will get kind of smoothed out, right? And so we see the governor, Jorosello, uh, who is actually the father of the current governor. So we can also talk about kind of political nepotism in, in Puerto Rico. But uh, Pedro Jorosello, in this moment in the 1990s, is attempting to reestablish Puerto Rico's importance to the U.S., right, and policing and public housing uh, uh, privatization become a mechanism for doing that be- precisely because Puerto Rico's competitive edge is, it disappears in, in this kind of economic um, moment. But I do think that in terms of the question of how do we get to, to where we are, there are roots in the 1990s for the current debt crisis, right? We see that um, Puerto Rico creates these kind of you know, Wall Street-backed kind of financial mechanisms um, for debt and borrowing precisely because the economy is tremendously unhealthy during the 1990s and early 2000s, right? So debt capitalism becomes the way, um, particularly as the U.S. is kind of like not paying attention to Puerto Rico and puts unequal uh, um, resources into Puerto Rico because precisely because of its colonial status, then debt and borrowing and these kind of finance, you know, forms of financial trickery, right, um, 
become the way that, you know, the public uh, work gets financed, all of that kind of stuff. So there are definite roots to um, the current debt crisis that we start to see really emerging in the 1990s and early 2000s that get us to this kind of um, breaking point where we're at now, where Puerto Rico is more than $70 billion in debt and has had a colonially imposed fiscal control board that is essentially wiping out the local economy in any chance for a kind of rebound, right? It's just about paying back um, investors and, and Wall Street, making sure that they're not kind of losing out, but they're closing schools and, and all of this other kind of stuff. We are speaking with Marisol LeBron, who is the author of Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence, and Resistance in Puerto Rico. Marisol is assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. So uh, you talked to Roberto at the beginning of your book, and then you mentioned how, and we were talking about it at the beginning of our conversation, and you mentioned how he tells you a cop can kill you if he or she has mm-hmm. the perception that you are dangerous or are going to put their life in danger. And you explained shaping Roberto's response that afternoon where the recently announced changes to the guidelines concerning lethal force for the Puerto Rican Police Department. On September 5th, 2011, the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice issued a damning report that declared the PRPD broken in a number of fundamental and critical respects. According to the DOJ report, the PRPD regularly used excessive and sometimes deadly force during routine stops and arrests to remedy the PRPD's unlawful use of force and what it called a deliberate indifference to the public safety. The DOJ recommended that the PRPD work toward general standards of accountability. In a perverse twist, the PRPD addressed the DOJ's concerns over a lack of standardized protocols regarding the use of force by issuing a general order that allowed the use of lethal force if an officer had a reasonable perception that his or her life or the life of another was threatened. So was the Department of Justice upset? Did they go back to him and say, no, this isn't enough of a reform? Why didn't This is in 2012, a few days after President Barack Obama took the oath of office for the second time. Did Eric Holder, the attorney general at the time, criticize or even condemn the PRPD's response to the damning DOJ report? So Puerto Rico is still under a consent decree with the DOJ. So in many ways, a lot of these issues have not been resolved, and the DOJ has not lifted the consent decree as a result, right? But this is a pattern that is not unique to Puerto Rico in a lot of ways. I'm sure a lot of the listeners are thinking about uh, cases that, that, you know, sparked Black Lives Matter and have sparked kind of a political uh, uh, um, uh, backlash in, in our country against precisely these ways in which police violence is, is made unique and justified, right, by the state, right, and seen as acceptable under all contexts, right? So that measure of a reasonable perception in a lot of ways gets used as as an excuse by the PRPD, but is um, the standard for many other police jurisdictions in in the United States, right? So we see that there's this way in which police violence becomes justified 
around this idea of a reasonable reasonable perception of danger, right? But the thing that I'm really interested in in terms of that kind of construction of a, what a reasonable perception of danger is, is the ways in which that is tremendously influenced by race and class biases, right, um, and gender biases. So um, one of the things I talk about and, and citing kind of Giovanni Roberto, who's the, this amazing activist, but also William Ramirez, who uh, at the time when that uh, decree is kind of issued, uh, was head of the local branch of the ACLU, is that they both know that, of course, a, an officer's reasonable perception is going to be shaped by the incredible race and class segregation that exists in Puerto Rico and the two decade, more than two decades of um, intensified policing and, and punitive governance of low income and, um, and, and, and black and dark skinned folks in Puerto Rico, right? Which the past two decades of policing in Puerto Rico have essentially worked to really suture together ideas about blackness, poverty, and criminality, right? And so for a, a police officer who came of age during that time and is on the force now, that is a that is a common sense notion that they have in terms of who is dangerous in Puerto Rico and who is likely to commit crimes, right? If I need to protect myself and my fellow officers or myself and the public, right, that reasonable perception is always going to um, work out so that Black and poor folks are seen as those who are a threat to everyone else. Right. And that's the result. Ultimately, what I kind of argue is that that's the result of where these past two decades of punitive policy have gotten us, is that they've deepened and intensified the racial stratification and the class stratification that was already present in Puerto Rican society. It made it much worse and it also made people feel less safe. Right. And so those opportunities for police to engage in kind of um, deadly violence, but also forms of less deadly or less spectacular violence, but everything from routine kind of harassment and intimidation are are just a, a, a common part of what it means to police in, in Puerto Rico and that's directed predominantly at low-income and racially marginalized um, communities. So I think that we haven't seen um, much of a difference. And so, and I'll shout out this wonderful um, organization in Puerto Rico that's doing work around this now, but Kilometro Cero, so Kilometer Zero in Puerto Rico is, an, is a uh, kind of um, community-based uh, nonprofit organization is actually doing work to document uh, instances of police violence um, particularly police killings, but also moments of intimidation, harassment, civil rights violations uh, against um, civilian, the civilian population, right? And what we're seeing, and it's, this is really interesting, is that um, the past year, so as the debt crisis, the past year, year and a half, as the debt crisis has worsened and, and the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, we're actually seeing a spike in, um, according to kind of data that the, the Kilometro Cero has been able to gather um, despite kind of massive police obfuscation and, and, and hiding of information, they've been able to gather that there has been a kind of increase in, in police kind of harassment and, and even killings in, in Puerto Rico. The number is not as kind of large as in the U.S., but it's 
when we take into account kind of population um, and especially population growth recently in Puerto Rico, the number is quite start. The numbers are quite startling in terms of police misconduct and and violence. So, I'm, I know that you just itemized this, but I just want you to kind of respond to this in a more general fashion because I think this is kind of the bigger point of the of uh, your entire work. Why doesn't punishment work in fixing society's problems? Right. I mean, I think this is something that if, you know, folks have been kind of thinking through, particularly from a kind of abolitionist um, perspective um, or a kind of radical criminology perspective. But what we see is that harsher uh, penalties, more punitive approaches do not result in any decrease, meaningful decrease in crime. Um, and in fact, often exacerbate those issues in a society that leads to crime, right? Crime is is symptomatic of larger ills in a society, right? But also crime is not this neutral kind of category, right? And this is something that, you know, Donna Murch has written quite eloquently about in her in her own work, right? But this idea that crime is kind of just like we have bad people who do these bad things and those we call those bad things crime and we call those bad people criminals, right? These are kind of not neutral categories, right? We, we as a society uh, define what we think is, is, is a crime, right? And we also um, criminalize populations that, that do things that we don't like, right? We render certain things criminal that otherwise, and, and in particular in other contexts are not criminal acts, right? And so, what we see is that, of course, because of the ways that criminalization works, right, that it actually targets those who are most likely to be uh, experiencing forms of marginalization, vulnerability, or dislocation from, um, you know, the economy, the political order, the kind of, you know, larger social social relations, right? And so because policing or harsher penalties more jail time, more police on the streets, they don't actually get at what are the things that are causing people to commit these things that we have deemed criminal in our society, right? And so drug dealing is one example of that that I, I talk a lot about in the book, right? And actually that residents who are living in communities that were experiencing high rates of kind of, or a booming kind of drug economy say themselves is they're like, they came and they arrested these kids, but they didn't do anything else, right? And so there's this one uh, person that I quote in 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 one of the chapters of the book, and she's a kind of head of a residence council in, in a public housing complex in Puerto Rico. And she's like, they came and they arrested these kids, but they what they don't they never gave them jobs. They didn't give them more educational opportunities, um, and now they've just actually eviscerated the only economic opportunities for social mobility that these kids had, right? And are sticking them in jail, right? Which jails are sites of kind of uh, incredible violence, right? Jail, people don't come out of jail, despite the rhetoric, better than they went in, right? Or or can come out um, having experienced tremendous trauma and and violence, right? And so we, part of the reason why these harsh po- uh, penalties and politics don't work is that they actually rely on greater violence, right? They don't address what the root causes. So like things like creating better kind of economic opportunities, greater political participation, 
all of those things that are are that crime is symptomatic of. It leaves all of those things entrenched and often exacerbates what are those kind of underlying causes. So it creates greater economic and political polarization, greater rates of marginalization, and greater rates of violence often is what these punitive policies rely upon, right, or are dependent upon in order to function. Your book is a collection of interviews with activists who are trying to challenge the system of colonialism. And there might be people who are listening right now wondering, where is the opposition? So for them, what happens to dissent under colonialism? And specifically, what happened to dissent under colonialism in Puerto Rico? Yeah, so in the book, I, I the second half of the book in particular is, is features a lot of kind of um, uh, interactions and interviews with local activists or kind of um, tracking of kind of local activist trends. And so one of the things that is important, right, is that Puerto Rico has gotten more punitive, much like many other kind of uh, locales around the globe, right? We've seen this kind of hard punitive turn and this kind of rise of these kind of tough on crime, uh, quasi-authoritarian regimes around around the globe, right, in the past kind of 20 to 30 years. But one of the things that I try to emphasize in the book is that this is not like, this is not one, not the way this needs to be, but also that people are constantly resisting um, these systems and constantly trying to imagine other ways of organizing society in non-punitive ways, right? Or they're kind of reduce the the violence that punitive governance kind of creates in, in their everyday lives. And so what we see is that, you know, dissent obviously in Puerto Rico is tremendously repressed, right? This is the case, whether we're talking about kind of pro-independence, um, the kind of long history of, uh, of demonization and criminalization of the pro-independence movement, both in Puerto Rico, but also in the diaspora. Um, in the United States, we've seen kind of the criminalization of a wide variety of progressive social movements over the course of U.S. rule, right? Um, so that is definitely the case where resistance is incredibly, incredibly um, criminalized. I'm actually headed to Puerto Rico uh, this week for or next week for the May 1st kind of protest. And there is a, a tremendous concern for folks that these May Day protests are going to be incredibly violent or, or incredibly kind of repressed by the police, right? The violence isn't going to be coming from protesters, but there's concern that the police are going to act violently and kind of in an incredibly repressive manner towards activists, right? And uh, the, the, uh, Civil Rights Commission in Puerto Rico actually just released an entire um, study showing how the previous May Day um, uh, protests in 2017 had experienced kind of very high rates of police violence, but also of kind of illegal forms of police surveillance, right? So that's definitely an undercurrent. Despite the repression, there are still people trying to figure out how to organize society differently and how to implement the changes to their communities, right? And so we see a tremendous amount of really amazing activism um, from everything from kind of the student movement. Um, I track in the book, Tendon Student Movement, and their <clears throat> activism against austerity and the neoliberalization of the university system, as well as their attempts to kind of really 
make the university a public space, right? So for these kind of communities that have been shut out, right? So low-income and predominantly Black communities that have in many ways been shut out of the public university system, trying to be more inclusive of them. We've seen tremendous social media activism, and that has been a really a, a, a kind of generated site for talking about violence and imagining alternatives because it's been able to actually bring together uh, folks who are in Puerto Rico as well as in the diaspora, right? And especially as the debt crisis has worsened, that becomes incredibly important as more and more Puerto Ricans find themselves in the diaspora, right? So keeping those kind of uh, lines of communication and allowing for opportunities for um, forms of activism and debate to emerge that are inclusive of diaspora are incredibly important. One of the kind of most concrete examples that I show in the book is that of um, the Acuerdo de Paz program or the ceasefire program created by Tayer Salud. So Tayer Salud is a feminist public health organization in Loisa, which is a predominantly low-income, predominantly Black uh, municipality and town in Puerto Rico, and Tayer Salud has been in Loisa for over 30 years, so uh, the long-established kind of community organization. And when they were experiencing more gang violence in um, 2009 and 2010, they actually were like, we don't really want the, the we don't really want the police to be the ones to deal with this, right? So uh, when there's this kind of spike in gang violence, the Puerto Rico Police Department brings in a tremendous amount of police um, to the point where they residents were feeling like they were under siege. And what we've seen is that when police have gone into uh, uh, low-income, predominantly Black areas, um, such as Via Cañona in Loisa, the, the rates of violence um, have increased. Uh, police have used kind of racial slurs against residents. Um, just all kinds of forms of intimidation and harassment um, spike, right? And so when they were experiencing this this increase in gang violence, they actually were like, we would like to try and do something different. And they initiated a three-year pilot program for this Acuerdo de Paz, this ceasefire program, where they actually went and they hired folks with um, community credibility who had been formerly uh, gang or street involved and uh, hire them to talk to the young men who were involved in the area Corillos or gangs and um, try and de-escalate violence, right? So if if you were in Loisa and there was something popping off, you could call this hotline that they had established and they would dispatch someone to come and mediate the situation, right? And so what we saw is that at that moment, Puerto Rico was, uh, so at the kind of height of the pilot program, 2011, was Puerto Rico's highest rate of murder uh, of homicides in its history, right? And in that year where homicide is spiking all over Puerto Rico, Louisa actually experiences a decrease in, in homicides. And part of the reason why is because they were experimenting with non-punitive solutions to the crises that, that were happening, right? Which were around um, establishing new solutions to conflict, right? They also worked with the young men to challenge ideas around ma the link between masculinity and violence, right, in, in, in their own way, right? Talking to them about, like, why do you feel like if you are a real man or to be a real man who defends his family and his community, that you have to kill someone, right? Or you have to hurt them, right? Or but changing these kind of social norms, right, actually had a much greater effect in a lot of ways than if they would have just 
put more police in the streets there, right? And it actually made people feel safer. And so I think people are really trying to figure out non-punitive solutions to the kinds of crisis that they're facing. And so one of the arguments I make in the book, and this is one of the lessons that I think we can take from the case of Puerto Rico, is that if you give if you give communities the resources that they need, and that they can and give them the space and the time to identify what is actually causing people to feel unsafe and what are the things that we can do as a community to increase people's feelings of participation and safety in this community, then we'll see violence reduced, right? I think that this this is a key takeaway, especially from the example of Taller Salud Acuerdo de Paz program, is that communities know in a lot of ways how to fix the problems that they're confronting. The problem is that we don't give them the resources that they need to actually do that, right? Or when we do offer them resources, they're often linked to these incredibly punitive technologies and regimes, right? So we say, you want to reduce violence in your community? Great. We'll give you, um, you know, community policing solutions, right? So we'll put more cameras, we'll put more police on the streets, we'll create a boys and girls club that has um, police as the main kind of folks teaching basketball clinics, right? Stuff like that. We we only offer kind of punitive solutions to these communities that are trying to deal with these problems. And so I think that we've seen a lot of folks try to think outside of that and really try to decenter policing as the solution to crisis that is really promising and that really gels with a lot of movements that we're also seeing here stateside in terms of movements that are emerging from communities of color to kind of decenter um, policing in these communities. We have been speaking with Marisol LeBron. She is author of Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence, and Resistance in Puerto Rico. Marisol's next project is tentatively titled Shared Geographies of Resistance, Puerto Ricans, and the Uses of Solidarity. Explores the role of Puerto Rico a Puerto Rican activist in international radical politics and freedom struggles over the course of the 20th century. We've had a lot of history uh, when it comes to African-Americans in that role in the 19th and 20th centuries on this show. So I'm really looking forward to that book coming out. So Marisol, please stay in contact with us so we can have you back on the show to talk about your next project, Shared Geographies of Resistance. Uh, Also, uh, one last question for you, Marisol. Mm -hmm. Our final question that we do for all of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to (laughs) ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You quote the authors of Police, a field guide, who we tried to get on the show, but we just didn't uh, succeed, unfortunately, David Korea and Tyler Wall, who uh, succinctly point out, quote, capitalism and colonialism cannot exist without a state willing and able to defend colonial domination, private property, the wage relation, and the ongoing patterns of dispossession that characterize all of these. Ain't no colonialism and ain't no capitalism without cops. So Marisol, is all governance under capitalism punitive? Wow, that's a that's a tough one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the, that's the crux of the issue, right? Is capitalism is inherently about reproducing and maintaining uh, unequal relationships, and we see that policing become or police become the key mechanism for. Um, maintaining and reinforcing and reproducing those social relationships of domination and inequality, right? If we think about the emergence of police in, you know, industrial context with the rise of capitalism, right, it's precisely 
to keep capital uh, uh, relations running smoothly, right? So keep, keep workers in line, or if we think about in the U.S. context and as well as other slaveholding societies, right? Or to act as slave patrols, right? To maintain uh, people as, as property, right? So I do think that there is a way in which um, capitalism will always um, reproduce uh, uh, these unequal relationships that require kind of a punitive response, right? Or, or for the state in order to maintain those require a punitive response, right? Which is why I think that the the work of abolishing prisons and police and punitive measures goes hand in hand with fundamentally reshaping our entire our entire social world, right? So abolishing the police and abolishing prisons isn't just about closing down prisons. Isn't just about uh, you know, having no more police, right? It's about like fundamentally reshaping our society. And that includes uh, creating something different than this economic system that we have, for sure. Marisol, thank you so much for being on our show. I'm really looking forward to your next work. And uh, please bug us when it's coming out. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This was great. All right. Take care. Your eyewitness to grief. This is how the opioid crisis is the result of racism and white privilege. Through what is known as racial capitalism, it's not caused by the Chinese or the Mexicans who President Trump is trying to blame. It's because opioid manufacturers marketed to white patients to avoid their drug being stigmatized for being associated with non-whites, which is sickening. Those drugs were then enshrined in mechanisms of white privilege, thus avoiding criminalization and leading to tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of white people dead. We'll find out how this opioid crisis fits into racial capitalism when we have the return of historian Donna Murch, who wrote the Boston Review article, How Race Made the Opioid Crisis. Donna is Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University. This is Donna's second appearance on our show, having been on the program back in May of 2016 when we spoke with her about her contribution to the Liza Featherstone edited False Choices, the Faux Feminism of Hillary Clinton. Donna's essay was titled the Clinton's War on Drugs, Why Black Lives Didn't Matter. And you can follow Donna on Twitter at MurchNick, M-U-R-C-H-N-I-K. Alex, what have you been up to on social media? On Facebook, I posted two really great pieces that I recommend people read. Uh, One of them was from Logic Mag, which I've been reading a lot of lately. And it's a long piece sort of detailing China's social credit system And there's a lot of sort of panicked responses to that or a lot of linking it to sort of Orwellian overtones, which, I mean, geez, it's not hard to link anything to Orwellian overtones this day. But uh, this piece sort of really lays out what the intentions of China's social credit system are and uh, where it could potentially go wrong. It's just an interesting read. Um, Also, Protean magazine had an article called The Hyper Surveillance Crusades uh, that gets into how ShotSpotter... Uh, which is technology that tracks um, gunshots in Chicago, opens up the city to a level of surveillance and then also uh, opens up a new field of capital where people are trying to uh, monetize the information and you have to pay, uh, cities have to pay to get the information back off of uh, their own surveillance methods. Um, Also on Instagram last week, uh, when I was walking to the show, there was a, I had a big shout out to whoever posted passive-aggressively three copies of their books on the Northwestern campus in their office facing the window so anyone walking by would see their books. And those books are the Lenin Anthology, Slavoj Žižek Presents Mao, and Chairman Mao Talks to People. 
And if there's anything uh, that's good about books, it's using them to uh, show everyone what you're into. So a good job to whoever is in that office uh, on my walk to the station. Good job. Uh, oh. oh, also, one other thing. Uh, how do you make your coffee, Chuck? How do I make it? Yeah, what, prep what do you use to prepare your coffee? Uh, coffee maker, grinder, that's about it. Oh, so you're a uh, Marxist-Leninist. Why is that? Um, from Doug Henwood's um, Facebook page, they were sharing a link of what your coffee preparation method says about you, and it just has uh, various left <laughs> ideology or tendencies uh, with the different methods of preparing coffee. So, yeah, you're just the regular old Marxist-Leninist. And so does, does drinking it black say anything? It's what, it's, what, it's what machine you process. use. It's the means of production. He is so obsessed with coffee machines. I got I got left com, which uh, I did not even know about until I looked at it, and uh, it's the coolest ideology. So uh, good for me. <laughs> good for you. All right, we gotta go to Donna merch, so I'm gonna get to listener feedback. Maybe next break, maybe next week. This week's question from hell is: How could a presidential candidate best pander to you? How could a presidential candidate best pander to you directly? All replies read on air following our next guest. This week's winner gets a stainless steel This Is Hell coffee mug. You can find them online by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Again, the question from hell is, how could a presidential candidate best pander to you directly? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen following our next guest to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Everybody, listen up. We've got a big announcement to make. If you are an artist or you know an artist, that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show during our anniversary party, which is taking place, write this down, on Saturday, July 27th. So that's in three months. Email me your or their art, and we'll definitely consider it to be part of the 2019 show. Again, we are accepting submissions for this year's annual This Is Art show that happens during our annual party every year. If you are an artist or know one that you think would be good to have as part of our show, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well. So if you're an artist or a musician, or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in our anniversary party, this year at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon on Saturday, July 27th, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the opioid crisis was driven by racism, but you're not going to hear that from the president or the media. Private equity, not innovative disruptors like Amazon, are destroying bricks-and-mortar retail grocery stores across the United States and taking tons of jobs with them. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin complains intersectionally. I don't know what that means. We'll also have what Alex. Oh no! Uh, we'll ha also have what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. Don't forget, there is a separate show every week for people who subscribe at Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. We'll continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow Hacker Psychedelic Warlord, 
who you may know as Beto O'Rourke. Of course, we'll have the question from Al. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online, others for supporting This Is Hell when they go to thisishell.com and click on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this is hell. Despite President Trump blaming the opioid crisis on Mexico and China, the actual culprit behind all the deaths is racism, capitalism, racial capitalism, and white supremacy. Here to set the story straight for us, returning to This Is Hell, historian Donna Murch wrote the Boston Review article, How Race Made the Opioid Crisis. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Donna. Oh, it's my pleasure. So glad to be back. Donna is the author of the 2010 book, Living for the City, and she has a new book to be published. I think it's this fall. Is the, as Asada taught me, is that coming out in October? It, yeah, it's coming out in the fall. Okay. I'm really looking forward to that book as well. You can follow Donna on Twitter at Merchnick. That's M-U-R-C-H-N-I-K. You start by writing in March 2018, President Donald Trump delivered a 45-minute speech about the crisis of addiction and overdose. Trump blankly recited the many uh, contributors to the current drug epidemic, including doctors, dealers, manufacturers. But then he went on to start blaming China and Mexico for saturating the United States with deadly uh, synthetic opioids, then moving seamlessly to what he considered one of the great internal threats. Quote, my administration is also confronting things called sanctuary cities, ending sanctuary cities is crucial to stopping the drug addiction crisis. So, Donna, what role do China, Mexico, and sanctuary cities play in the opioid crisis? Almost none. Almost none. In its genesis, Um, there's a really powerful quote that I have from a Stanford professor and psychologist who's also a West Virginia native. And he says something really powerful about the origins of the opioid crisis. He says, West Virginia is emblematic of where this opiate, where this epidemic is at its most destructive. Rural areas that don't have sanctuary cities and indeed generally don't have cities at all. Recent immigrants are rare, yet opioid addiction is rampant. That's because the opioid epidemic was made in America, not in Mexico, China, or any other foreign country. The astonishing increase in providing opioids, which at its apex reached nearly a quarter of a billion prescriptions per year, is what started and still maintains our opioid epidemic. Prescription opioids come from American companies and are prescribed by American doctors and overseen by American regulators. I think he said it better than any of us could. Do you think that this is... Is this all to shift blame away from the United States? Do you think this is driven by uh, President Trump's desire for nationalism, for being patriotic, for blaming all of our problems on somebody else other than ourselves? Well, you know, I think that there are a couple of reasons for it. I think, first of all, in terms of Donald Trump, he has this habit of blaming so many problems in the United States on the southern border, the combination of the southern border border and China. So this is kind of his refrain for many, many things. So I think he has a particularly anti-Mexican, anti-Latino and racist vision about the world that we live in. But I would say that Trump is actually not unique. You know, my piece is about how the racialization of drug problems, it goes back 
long and deep into American history and more broadly into the history of the West. So I traced the history of the opium wars in the late 19th century, which are a product of Britain trying to open up Chinese markets by forcing China to import opium, and China refuses, and a war ensues. And by the end of, or I'm sorry, the beginning of World War One, you have an enormous addiction crisis in China. The way this plays itself out in the United States is that instead of censoring Britain, Chinese laborers are targeted for opium prosecution. Similarly, in the 1930s, after the Mexican Revolution, as you have an increase in migration, labor migration, you have a marijuana crisis. And this is deeply racialized. And the same thing is also true of the criminalization of Chinese labor. Much of it is put in sexual terms, that you have essentially these dark populations coming into the United States. They're bringing with them a racial contagion and also a kind of, you know, interracial, interracial lust for white women. So this, this framing of drug policy and drug problems through the lens of racial fantasy is deep, deep, deep in American history. And I think the most important piece is really post-World War II with the, in the aftermath of Richard Nixon's declaration of a war on drugs in the 1970s and 1980s you have this enormous criminalization of black and brown populations. 600,000 people are put in prison in the 1990s under the Clinton administration uh, under the guise of the war on drugs. So you have the, the combination of the disproportionate targeting by law enforcement for drug arrests and prosecutions. And then you also have a kind of cultural logic. I think that we're of the generation that remember films like Traffic or Requiem for a Dream that represent white and black drug use in radically different ways. So white people are associated with using drugs for health reasons, to be better workers, you know, to be more productive citizens. And when they essentially become addicts, then it's seen as a kind of tragic fall. Whereas African-Americans and Latinos are often represented as inherently vice-ridden, lustful, and illicit. So my piece is about that. So I'd say that Trump has his own particular intensification of racism, and much of his racism focuses both on Muslims and on um, Latinos in the southern border, as well as China. But he's certainly not unique. He's situated within a long discourse about race and but really about race and sex, like as a way to understand drugs versus a kind of much more, you know, objective, disinterested question of what do we do with uh, substance use, substance use and abuse. We'll get back to uh, what pre who President Trump is blaming for the opioid crisis and why in a moment. But you mentioned a couple of movies, as you mentioned in your article, uh, 2000's uh, Traffic and Requiem for a Dream. You write that uh, drawing on the cinematic grammar of D.W. Griffith's classic 1915 Klan pian, Birth of a Nation, they reenact the white supremacist ideology that reinforced racial segregation. But that those two movies were made nearly 20 years ago. Do you think that kind of young white girls are coerced into interracial sex by black male per uh, pushers storyline? Do you think that would fly today? Have we moved beyond the innocent white girl coerced by guilty black men storyline being acceptable anymore? That's an excellent question. And, you know, here I have to plead age. Because I feel like I'm not as in touch with the culture. You know, traffic comes out when I'm like, I'm in my late 20s, and I was really in touch with the culture. So in terms of popular culture, I think that these myths live on. I mean, the kinds of, when we ask ourselves these questions about the sexualization of racism, so 
you know, the focus on the black male body and the fear of the black male body. Remember Darren Wilson, when he killed Michael Brown, he described himself, he described it as that he felt that he was, you know, in danger of being crushed, that he was holding on to a beast. So certainly, I think in the kinds of language that's used by law enforcement and the disproportionate killings, I think that these kinds of rationale remain very deep in the culture. I'm not sure about like popular culture, um, you know, how much it's still present. I think it takes subtler forms and the ways that Black men and women, and especially Latinos, are sexualized in the culture. I mean, more recently, I saw Kill the Messenger, which I was so excited about because it was a feature film about the very important investigative journalist, Gary Webb. And it told a story that is one that unfortunately I think has not been transmitted to subsequent generations about this investigative reporter that traced links between the Contras and cocaine trafficking and crack in Los Angeles. But it was interesting, the way that they told the story of Gary Webb, there were particular moments in the film that, again, drew on these stereotypes. You had the hypersexual Latina who helped him, put him in touch with her boyfriend, who ultimately gave him access to what would become the Dark Alliance story. So even in a film that was about trying to reclaim a history of critical investigative reporting about Contra cocaine, you saw, again, the resurgence of these you know, using sexual narratives as the way to make people legible. So I don't know, because I I kind of, I watch a lot of television, but not film. So I do think there have been some shifts in popular culture. There is a uh, a real influence. I think a whole generation of people of all different backgrounds have studied Black studies and ethnic studies, and there's an increasing self-consciousness about representation. But in terms of how these narratives still live on, and help drive state violence and police violence in particular. I think they're very much alive. I cannot watch Kill the Messenger. I interviewed, I had the amazing honor of interviewing Gary Webb once, and I have it sitting there on my DVR, and I've tried it a couple of times, and I just start bawling throughout the whole thing. Thank you for giving me another reason not to watch that movie. I really appreciate that, Donna, because I do not want to watch that movie. Uh, How well do you think blaming China and Mexico and sanctuary cities and immigrants. How well do you think blaming all of those different entities for the U.S. opioid problem, how much do you think that works to rally Trump's base? Do you think he, do you think it's a good political strategy for Trump if he's thinking about attaining votes? Unfortunately, I really think it is. Um, I was on a panel last week with an activist for the Center for Popular Democracy, and there's a project that they're working on, which is trying to undo the 1994 crime bill. And she was talking about how one of the things that ultimately led them to this kind of activism is that they were noticing that in the 2016 and some of the congressional elections before that, it was only Republicans that were talking about the opioid crisis, not Democrats. And they were using the opioid crisis as a way to talk about white suffering. And they were interested in the kind of racial politics of this, why this was happening. So I think that, you know, it's one of the major reasons that I wrote my piece. I'm currently working on a book on crack and the war on drugs. So I'm very focused on the 80s and 90s. So I was not, you know, before I did this, I'd been reading broadly about the opioid crisis, but I hadn't carefully researched it. But I wrote this piece because I really wanted to interrupt this narrative especially most of it was written in December, but before some of the big stories broke, 
um, just after the Guggenheim protest. And it was at the height of the frenzy of the building the wall and also the federal shutdown in, in January. So I wanted to write something to interrupt this story because I think that the opioid crisis, the way that it's understood, becomes a stand-in for the larger problem of um, the declining life expectancies among white populations in the U.S., especially working-class white populations. And I wanted to make that story more complicated because, one, white people still have higher life expectancy than black people in the U.S., and that really matters. So in some ways, what we're seeing is a convergence of, you know, lower standards of living and lower life expectancy. And I think there's a problem the way that this has been talked about is something that's unique to white populations. But when I started researching this, I saw the scale of the crisis and also its origins. In popular media, I've seen a lot of stories about pill mills um, and about, you know, unscrupulous doctors. But there hadn't been as much coverage about the pharmaceutical company's real culpability and the incredible methods of marketing they used to create essentially a new demographic of opioid users. So when I began to look at that, it also explained to me some of the demographics of why the opioid crisis in its earlier years was so white. So I wanted to write something that would speak to this, but would provide an alternate narrative than simply a narrative of white decline white suffering, and also white resentment. And I think that the opioid crisis in many ways is used to mobilize white resentment. And I think I was talking to a friend of mine about this. You know, it's one of the ironies with drug crises. I feel that white white populations that are being affected by the opioid crisis have a lot to learn from how black communities responded to crack, that this actually has the potential to create a moment of solidarity to think about how people deal with a combination of real structural economic disempowerment, a privatized healthcare system, and these increasingly pharmaceuticalized solutions to human problems with large numbers of people not having healthcare. I wanted to change the narrative, both to interrupt the racism of blaming China, Mexico, and Central America, but also to try to write about opioids in the context of a larger war on drugs rather than just contrasting the opioid crisis with the 1980s, because I actually think that they need to be looked at together, not apart. You write, since the late 1990s, yearly rates of overdose deaths from legal white market opioids have consistently exceeded those from heroin. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, between 1999 and 2017, opioid overdoses killed nearly 400,000 people, with 68% of those deaths linked to prescription medications. Moreover, as regulators and drug companies tighten controls on diversion and misuse after 2010, the American Society of Addiction Medicine determined that at least 80% of new heroin users started out misusing prescription painkillers. So why, wasn't, why weren't opioids a crisis earlier? Why did we have to wait 10, 15 years for the opioid crisis to be viewed as a crisis? Why is it only in the last several, last few years, suddenly become a crisis? Well, it's a very, very disturbing story. And anyone who's really interested in this should look at the scholarship of Barry Meyer, Who's a, he's now retired, but he was a New York Times reporter for many years. And he wrote a brilliant book called Painkiller in 2003. So he was already observing this. But it's a story where you have to go back into the 1980s and the Reagan era. And this is one of the paradoxes that I write about in my piece is that, so when we think of the Reagan era, we often think of, or certainly I do, of the second war on drugs. 
this is the real period of the expansion of mass incarceration. It doesn't start in the 1980s, but it expands vastly. This is the period where you have the passage of the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity for powder versus crack cocaine, the two anti-drug abuse acts, federal mandatory minimum, just an immense expansion of punitive state power. But this is also the time of deregulation of the so-called Reagan's Second American Revolution. So in his uh, real commitment to destroying the regulatory state. Uh, under Ronald Reagan, you had a relaxing of controls on pharmaceutical companies. You had the simultaneous defunding of the Federal Drug Administration, whose funding had actually, believe it or not, increased under Richard Nixon. But its funds were severely cut, its powers were limited, and for the first time in American history, pharmaceutical companies were allowed to directly market drugs on television. It's called direct consumer direct-to-consumer advertising. So the, the deregulatory impulse of the 1980s really, really set the stage for what happens in the 90s. This continues under the Clinton administration, so there's both bipartisan culpability in this, although I think Reagan created the real foundation for it, and then the Clinton administration continued it. So in this process of deregulating pharmaceutical companies, you also have a combination of pain, um, uh, pain advocates, and then people who are working between like not-for-profits and the drug companies that really rallied in order to have pain identified as the fifth vital sign. So you have this kind of revolution in pain treatment where pain becomes identified as a core part of human health. And the, the, the argument was made that this is one of the greatest health crises in the United States, that we have this enormous epidemic of untreated pain. Um, so Deregulation, I'd say, is the first piece. And then the second one is that, and this is, the, this is the racial capitalist piece, and I'm drawing on the really brilliant work of psychiatrist Helena Hansen and drug policy um, director Julie Netherland, as well as the, the drug scholar David Hertzberg, who've really done the foundational research on this. But at the time that this deregulation is occurring, and it's not only Purdue Pharma, but they have the, I think they have the most um, impact with OxyContin, and I'll be talking about why, but other pharmaceutical companies are engaged in this as well. They wanted to figure out how to mass market these opioids. So human history has a very long encounter with the opium poppy, and uh, opioids in the 1990s are Schedule II medications. So there was always an awareness of their addictive potential. But in the context of deregulation and the, the identification as pain is the fifth vital sign, pharmaceutical companies began to market opioids to a whole new class of users. So in the 90s, they were largely for malignant pain. So they were, being, they were treating people for end-of-life treatment with l large doses of opioids. And there were two doctors that were involved in this that worked with Purdue Pharma, but they made the case using data from cancer patients that the sustained release opioid analgesics were not addictive. Now, of course, these are patients who are chronically ill, many of them in end of life. So measuring addiction in that context is very, very difficult. So they used that with very limited data. There was a, literally a letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it became the basis of a series of studies that were done by pharmaceutical companies. And because of the prestige of the publication, this was used as a precedent to say that we don't have to worry about uh, opioid addiction. 
So Purdue Pharma created this new class of sustained-release opioid analgesics. And they were supposed to be safe because they were timed release. So they allowed for much, much larger intense dosages of opioids to be given to patients with the idea that they could be distributed over 12 to 15 hours. They put a, a, a warning on the label that said, you know, do not take improperly, do not crush. Now, of course, this became almost a blueprint for how people could crush them. So in the early 2000s, there began to be reports of something called hillbilly heroin. I remember reading about it in the New York Times, and there was a discussion of it, but they focused largely on very poor populations in places like West Virginia. And there wasn't a lot of real investigation into why this was happening. There were some prosecutions in Broward County, which had the least deregulated, uh, least controlled um, sale of opioids. But a lot of the focus was on the pill mills and on this problem about, you know, this uh, prescribers prescribing them, then being filled in pill mills in Florida and then being sent to other parts of the country. But there wasn't a lot of attention to the larger structural question of why this was happening. So I think it always takes time with drug epidemics or drug crises to figure out that they're happening and what their causes are. But the pharmaceutical companies also have enormous amounts of power. Right now, they fund more lobbyists than any other industry in the United States. So I think that it's a, a, an issue of regulators being asleep at the wheel, Congress being subject to heavy, heavy lobbying. I would add um, one of the presidential candidates, Cory Booker, has been hugely supported uh, by pharmaceutical companies, as many others. It's absolutely a bipartisan problem. And the third piece, I think, is that this is happening during the war on drugs. And so much of the focus is on the incarceration of people for illicit drug use. So one of the things the pharmaceutical companies did was they purposely targeted white populations. They were concerned that in the process of having these drugs deregulated, that if they, if the face of this new generation of users was black or brown, that this would impede the process of deregulation. So there is evidence in the advertising and the kinds of literature that was distributed and the way they represented that they literally talked about them as a new class of um, consumers, that they purposely chose a population that was not associated with addiction. And that included both rural uh, users and suburban. One of the examples of this, I think, is uh, Rush Limbaugh. You know, there, people talked about opioids as only being this white working class you know, problem of hillbilly heroin, but we did have these not only very high profile deaths in Hollywood, but also users like Rush Limbaugh. So I think this is a problem across different kinds of white populations. So it's it's amazing that there was this purposeful intent to market to white areas and to white people in order to make it so their drugs were not stigmatized by being used by African-Americans. That is absolutely stunning to me. What do people who deny that they have white privilege, what do they not realize about white privilege when it comes to what happened with the opioid crisis? Yeah, you know, there's a a line that I wanted to read from this piece, and it it really just kind of came to me uh, when I was writing it. And it was about 
the, the how to understand whiteness in this moment. One of the most important lessons to be learned from viewing the opioid crisis and war on drugs through the lens of racial capitalism is that the privileges of whiteness come at great social cost, not only for those excluded from them, but also for those who possess them. And I wanted to, to stress that because first, we don't have a smoking gun. So we don't have a memo that says that this was marketed to white populations, but these critical drug scholars have written about this, you know, through looking at the advertisements and also the geographic distribution of the epidemic, so-called epidemic or crisis. So, you know, we have strong evidence, although no direct smoking gun. But I think that for me, this is almost a metaphor for the larger issue of whiteness in the Trump era. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, which is uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania, which was one of the counties that supported Trump that was core to his win in the Electoral College. And I think that the this idea of white populations, in some cases, supporting policies that are actually damaging both to them economically and even um, and even health is a major issue. There's a really brilliant book by uh, a psychiatrist and public health scholar, Jonathan Metzl, um, about um, the lower life. He did a careful study of lower life expectancy in two states and essentially looked at the role of pro-gun policies in lowering life expectancy. So I think that there are ways in which whiteness um, is damaging not only to other populations, but even to white people themselves. And that's the world that I grew up in, in a kind of post-industrial city where heavy, dirty industry is leaving and the community is really suffering economically. But they were supporting Reagan adamantly in the 1980s. And that had to do with an anxiety about redistributive benefits, about social welfare and busing, the idea that Black populations are going to get benefits. So people supported policies that were really not in their own interest. And even as like a teenager or young person, I recognized in some ways they were divesting their children of their future for fear of someone else benefiting. And the opioid crisis to me has that, that element to it. It's a way to get a lens onto this dynamic. You quote historian David Hertzberg, as you were mentioning earlier, author of 2009's Happy Pills in America, from Milltown to Prozac, places the opioid crisis in the larger sweep of U.S. history. According to Hertzberg, there is no real difference between prescription medicines and illicit drugs. Both possess physical and psychoactive effects, but the social meaning attributed to them has more to do with race, class, and differential application of state power than pharmacology. The contemporary disparity between between licit and illicit has its origins in the Jim Crow era when the Supreme Court backed the principle of separate but equal. Are concepts of what are good drugs and what are bad drugs, what are hard drugs and what are soft drugs, racist, because I've talked to a lot of medical professionals and I've asked them, how do you feel about the war on drugs? How do you feel about drugs being illegal? And every one of them has always told me all drugs should be legal so they can be regulated in a way that doesn't harm the public. However, then I'll talk to people who are not medical professionals and they'll often say, I believe in decriminalizing drugs, but not the hard drugs, not heroin or cocaine. So are those concepts of what are hard and soft drugs racist? 
I think that most of it is determined by the race of the user, not the drug. So, I mean, there are exceptions, but it's often, David Herbert makes this distinction that the difference between dope and medicine was often the race and the class of the user. So one of the amazing statistics that I cite in my piece, and I found this working on my new book on crack in Los Angeles, is that in Los Angeles and 12 other major metro areas, including Miami and New York, not a single white person was was prosecuted on federal crack charges from 1986 to 1994. So imagine that. This is the height of the war on drugs. And what happened was that prosecutors were shunting white drug users into state-level prosecutions, which were much larger and were, which were, I'm sorry, which were much, they were much shorter terms. And more people were serving time in state and state prisons versus federal. But the idea that in a city like Los Angeles or Miami that were the epicenter of crack, not a single white person, those core eight years of the war on drugs was ever prosecuted on federal drug, on federal crack crack violations. So I mentioned that to say that it's really the person themselves. So NIDA, uh, the government's own um, agency, determined that in this period, two-thirds of crack users were white. But crack became typed as a black drug. And it's a complicated story about how it's seen as a black drug, even though there are all all this evidence of large-scale white drug use, but black crack use is more visible and it's concentrated in particular areas. It's reported on as being a black drug. So, you know, the question of who used crack more is really very contested by scholars. But I think that, so the division is not really hard versus soft. It's that, you know, if you are not white and you use drugs, you are seen through a different lens than white people using drugs. And this distinction is very important because what's happening now is my piece is a historical piece. It's about the genesis of the opioid crisis. But now the nature of the opioid crisis is changing. In New York City, the rate of overdose among Black people is higher now than for white residents of New York. So the opioid crisis is shifting and changing and who's using it. Um, so I think that the core and historical racial distinction is that white people who use drugs are often seen as either misguided or as health seekers, and black and brown people who use drugs are seen as inherently flawed, morally fallen, and vice-ridden. So it's a continuation or a manifestation of ways that race functions in other areas. Let me ask you a kind of a general question. Why hasn't the market system made racism unprofitable? Because as as any MBA student will argue, the market can be used to do away with bad things by punishing poor behavior with a lack of business and profits. So why hasn't the market worked its magic and ended racism, or at least made racism unprofitable and bad for business? Well, I think that we have to revisit the very origins of market, the very origins of capitalism in which race and these systems, like the transnational slave trade, the seizure of indigenous lands, that at its core, the creation of markets was always built on racial inequality. So while the kind of language of market as forms of equalization is used, I think that that really is uh, contradicted by the history. First of all, like structural disparities in markets are profitable. They allow you to pay people less. They also create, as we saw, for example, in the creation of the new market of 
um, opioid users, the ways that by choosing to market to white populations, these populations were designated as not subject to the same kinds of potential for addiction. So racism became very important to the targeting of this population. So by having images of suburban housewives, of young college students, of people that we think of, um, people that the, the broader general culture thinks of as innocent and well-meaning, it's the racial ideas that differentiated them make it, made it possible actually to deregulate and expand a market. So I think that there are many instances where, whether it's in questions of pay equity, that the structural disparities are profitable, but even in consumption patterns, that racial disparities are very important. So I think markets are always inherently racialized, and we have a lot more evidence of the kind of profitability in racialization than in the reverse. Does the war on drugs, does that cause racism? What role does the drug war play in at least reinforcing racism in the United States? I think it's both. I think racism is core to the war on drugs, but in its in its process of criminalizing large numbers of people and setting them apart, it also abets and furthers and generates racism. So it's kind of, it's a feedback loop. But I think the logic of the war on drugs, in my piece, I quote a Nixon official who essentially says that in the 1960s, uh, in the Nixon administration, they saw Black people and the radical left anti-war protesters as the problem, but it was impossible to make it illegal to be Black or illegal to protest the war. And so they targeted the drugs that were associated with these people as a way to both discredit and criminalize them. And he says this very clearly. He says, did we know what we were doing? Absolutely. And I don't, I want to make clear that this is not about a kind of conspiracy. He's giving a political account of the response to the mass protest of the 1960s. And that from the point of view, from John Ehrlichman's point of view, that the war on drugs for them was seen as a political tool. So it's not just racism in the abstract. I also think, you know, if we think about race, there are many things encoded with it. There are biological ideas of racism. There's also a piece that's associated with the role that Black populations have in the history of the United States. So they are commodified, stripped of their citizenship, but they also are an important source of opposition to the status quo. So in the Nixon administration, they saw the war on drugs as a political tool. But we might just broaden our toolkit, I think, in how we understand racism but there's no question that in the contemporary moment, mass, mass incarceration is one of the most important. Um, it's one of the most important ways that racism is made material and given life. What impact do you think would ending the drug war have on institutionalized racism here in the United States? Because I would assume that it would continue, that the war on drugs isn't the only part of institutionalized racism in the United States. So what impact would ending the war on drugs have on that institutionalized racism? I think it would have an enormous impact. It's very, very important. Um, We also need to target racism in other areas of society and the kinds of broad social solutions that are needed. You know, what happens both with mass incarceration and the war on drugs is that it was taking social problems and then trying to legislate them through punishment. So through mass incarceration, as Kelly Lyle Hernandez has talked about mass elimination, which is taking people off the streets, 
trying to use the system of punishment and incarceration to treat larger problems like economic marginalization, you know, absence of health care, inability to get drug treatment. So I think stopping the war on drugs and the larger processes of punishment, mass incarceration would be a huge first step. But that has to be wed to a broader social vision in which we try to treat both problems of the spirit and material material problems with real social solutions. Can't we just blame the doctors, the people who prescribed you the drugs? You write the company's uh, aggressive sales tactics, that's Purdue, uh, convinced primary care phys- physicians to describe uh, prescribe opioids much more frequently for a wide range of patients' complaints, including lower back and arthritis. By 2003, primary care physicians made up nearly half of OxyContin's prescribers. Some experts at the time worried that those physicians lacked independent training in chronic pain management and addiction. So is this just all doctors' faults? Can we blame this on individual actions by individuals? No, absolutely not. And there's some wonderful books written about this, as I recommended, Barry Meyer's Painkiller. There's another book that came out from a Guardian journalist called American Overdose, and they trace in detail the dynamic with pharmaceutical companies built a whole entrepreneurial architecture to sell these drugs. And one of the things that they did is they created an army of sales reps that were paid between $15,000 and $240,000 a year in annual bonuses based on the increase in prescriptions sold for Purdue. So another strategy that they deployed, which is deeply disturbing, is they purposely targeted primary care physicians. So they provided them with literature. They took them to seminars and sunny places that were plush toys and CDs. But they also made important inroads into not-for-profits and into kind of places of medical protocol so that in many ways, I think it was hard for doctors at the time to understand, especially primary care physicians, to understand the potential addictive addiction problems of these medications and their misuse. So one of the things that some of the public health scholars that write about this have shown is that they they strayed away from physicians who specialize in treatment addiction. The problem with primary care physicians is that many of them were not well-informed about addiction. So I think there was a targeting of the PCPs, primary care physicians, and they also used data. One of the things that I didn't know before I wrote this piece is that when you sign HIPAA, it protects your, your name, but all of the other medical data, much of it is still available and anonymously. So the pharmaceutical companies, by zip code, could go to see what areas of the country already had the highest levels of opioid use, and then in turn could target those specific prescribers, which is exactly what they did. You see that this is the racial capitalist piece, a combination of a very targeted marketing strategy with an advertising strategy based on racial assumptions. So I really see primary care physicians largely as the victims in this. I think it's much easier to to tell a story of bad Apple prescribers, but this was a structural problem where the FDA was asleep at the wheel. Purdue was allowed and other pharmaceutical companies to use these really, I would call them violent market practices. And one of the most disturbing parts of my article is what happens in 2000, from 2001 to 2007. So 
the piece focuses on these ways that we bring together the war on drugs and the opioid crisis. And another way that they're linked is in figures like Rudolph Giuliani. So Rudolph Giuliani is mayor of New York in this period. And in 2000, New York saw under his watch the single largest number of marijuana arrests. So nearly 52,000 people were arrested that year. And throughout his years as mayor, it was the marijuana arrests per year were roughly 40,000, which was a 40-fold increase from previous years. So uh, Rudolph Giuliani was absolutely a drug warrior. He also led a very vicious campaign against methadone and, and argued for drug abs- complete abstinence from hard drugs. Well, two years later, Rudolph Giuliani is hired by Purdue Pharma to defend it from the state-level lawsuits. So you had a U.S. District Attorney, John Brownlee, from Eastern Virginia that was trying to prosecute Purdue. And this goes back to your earlier question, you know, why didn't we know this? One of the interesting things that was happening is that the states knew it because they were suffering enormous costs. So they're seeing, you know, all the public health data about overdoses rising, about the economic cost of the ex- epidemic in terms of emergency room visits and treatment, also the foster care system. In some places, the number of foster children was increasing between 50 and 80 percent. The states were really angry at the pharmaceutical companies. They knew, but there wasn't enough reporting about it in the mainstream press. And as I said, when they did report on it, they only reported on pill mills on doctors. So Purdue hires Rudolph Giuliani, the ultimate drug warrior, and he he, you know, adamantly defends Purdue and has enormous success. He uses not only his skills as a lawyer, but also his political contacts. So between 2001 and 2007, while this suit is going forward, Giuliani works out a deal where Purdue does not have to alter its market market practices. So these, even while they have all this evidence and these lawsuits are going on, it continues in the same method, this zip code level targeting of specific prescribers it continues to do this as the overdoses are rising and rising. So from 1997, I think it's to 2010, 218,000 people die of prescription death, prescription overdose death, death. And I would just add, that does not include people who are using multiple medications. So some of the high-profile deaths, like Heath Ledger, for example, was not included in that statistic. If you were to include people that died who were using both antidepressants and opioids, the numbers would be even larger. So, you know, that cognitive dissonance, I guess that's a generous way to put it, that drug warriors like Giuliani, you know, who presides over a police riot, who's like hammering black and brown populations to stop and frisk and arresting people for marijuana possession, adamantly defended Purdue. He And the, the outcome of this is that Purdue was not directly named in the lawsuit. Therefore, they were allowed to still have contracts with the federal government. You write that some of the harshest advocates, as you were just saying, for punishment and the criminalization of illicit drug use, have also enthusiastically supported and defended pharmaceutical deregulation and expanded access to opioids. If there is any doubt about Trump's acquiescence to big pharma, despite his campaign promises to lower Medicare drug prices, one need look no further than his appointment of Alex Azar, the second former president of the U.S. Division of Pharmaceutical Giant Eli Lilly and Company, to serve as Secretary of Health and Human Services, including Giuliani's history, including Ronald Reagan making it so OxyContin can exist. How exploitable is this 
paradox for Democrats. How vulnerable are Republican policies of deregulation in the pharmaceutical industry in light of the opioid crisis? To be honest, this is a bipartisan problem. The Clinton administration was very important to deregulation. So, you know, one of the things that we saw in the late 20th century, and it's still a legacy today, is this narrowing of the space of public debate. So the Clinton administration expanded mass incarceration, expanded it from the from the Reagan administration, and they also supported deregulatory policies. Of course, we know about their over the Glass-Steagall Act, which prevented, which was passed in the 1930s, you know, to prevent insurance companies from and banks being conjoined. So it was ways to regulate financialization in the economy. That was overturned under a Democrat. Similarly, the vast expansion of mass incarceration took place under a Democrat's watch. So the way that I understand this is really a system that's nurtured by the two-party system, which is one of the reasons that we need radical political alternatives. One of the exciting things for me right now is seeing really the birth of a socialist left that's very widespread and strong. I teach at Rutgers University, and we have a very strong union that's essentially just passed um, a very, very radical contract. Whether it's the Democratic Socialists of America or this you know, younger generation that's deeply invested in radical alternatives, I think that this is the real solution. The Democrats are deeply implicated also in projects of taking money from pharmaceutical companies, financialization, and in deregulation itself. One last question for you, Donna. We've been speaking with historian Donna Merch. She wrote the Boston Review article that we've been discussing this morning, How Race Made the Opioid Crisis. Donna is Associate Professor of History at Rutgers. This is Donna's second appearance on our show. You can go to our website and just type in Donna Murch, M-U-R-C-H, and you can hear our interview with her from May 2016 when she discussed an essay she had written called The Clinton's War on Drugs, Why Black Lives Didn't Matter. Donna has a new book coming out this fall, Asada Taught Me State Violence, Mass Incarceration, and the Movement for Black Lives, and I'm hoping to have her back on the show then. Donna, you have an open invitation to our show Whenever you want to be on. Our final question for all of our guests, on, as you know, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. While I was reading your article at Boston Review, I kept having this thought in my head, and I just want, and I don't think, I don't even know if this, this question might be completely baseless, so keep that in mind. <laughs> How much is the acceptance of recreational marijuana use how much is that growing in popularity because it is increasingly being perceived as a white drug on some level? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, there's no question, certainly in distribution, that that is the case. You know, the, I've been watching just this question about, you know, you have so many people still in prison and convicted on marijuana offenses, but the, you know, looking at big business moving in to the legal marijuana industry. So certainly on the, on the side of distribution, that's clear. Um, I think that's part of it. I think that's probably part of it. But to be generous, I think that also um, the United States, and, and I think this is true, especially of politically radical and progressive people, but even people who are not, see the effects of mass incarceration, the war on drugs. It's just been an absolute resounding failure. The consumption of drugs has not decreased. In fact, we've seen this explosion 
of the what started out as prescription opioids and now increasingly is devolving into an illicit economy. And the idea that you can you can declare war on drug consumption has just been it's clearly a failed project. So I think marijuana is something that because it also has medicinal applications, you know, the long-term lobbying because it's important for cancer patients, anti-nausea and anti-seizure. So it also has medical application. So I think that there are multiple reasons why that's happening. I think it's possible that it's um, it's that it's seen less as it's less coded as as a black or brown drug. But to be generous, I think there's frustration in the United States about the war on drugs and the idea that we would put so many people in prison for using a drug that most people consider benign and others think is essential as for medical treatment. It's just it's no longer, marijuana is no longer a feared drug by many. Donna, I really appreciate you uh, being back on our show. And like I said, you have an open invitation. Whenever you want to be on our show, please do so. And I want uh, want to have you back on the show to talk about uh, your new book uh, coming out in the fall, as well as your other book that you're working on about crack. I really, really appreciate having you as a guest on our, our show. I just want to make sure it isn't three years from now that the next is the next time we have you on. So <laughs> thank you so much for being on our show again. It's absolutely my pleasure. All right. Take care, Donna. Thank you. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp. This is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site. Again, thisishell.com and then click on support. Thanks this week goes out to the incredible tithing commitments of Magnificent Me and as well as Daniel P. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever. If you want to be thanked on air, support This Is Hell and get a This Is Hell coffee mug, t-shirt, and or tote bag. Go to thisishell.com click on support. Retail grocery store chains are going belly up and the media keeps telling us that's the new normal in the age of innovative disruptors of the supermarket industry like Amazon. Problem is, it's not disruption that's putting grocery stores and chains out of business and grocery workers out of work. It's private equity and it's killing jobs and destroying lives and communities in its wake. We'll find out what's really happening with the closing of bricks bricks and mortar stores when we learn from economist Eileen Applebaum, who returns to This Is Hell, and human resources scholar Rosemary Batt, co-authors of the Center for Economic Policy and Research Report, Private Equity Pillage, Grocery Stores and Workers at Risk, which you can find at CEPR. Dot net. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, how could a presidential candidate best pander to you directly? How could a presidential candidate best pander to you directly? All replies right on air right now. This week's winner gets a stainless steel This Is Hell coffee mug, which you can see by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Again, the question from hell. How could a presidential candidate best pander to you directly? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, to still have a chance at winning this week's prize, a stainless steel This Is Hell coffee mug. Or you can just direct message us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Alex, you have all the responses. How could a presidential candidate best pander to you directly? Dennis H. says, let me shoot the billionaires they line up against the wall. Oh, that's nice. Jeremy T. says, definitely not by going on a black radio show and claiming to carry a bottle of hot sauce in her purse. Oh my God. Head meets desk. Seriously, how out of touch do you have to be to think that's a good idea? 
Bradley R. says, kill my landlord. Rosalind B. says, first candidate to unleash a string of 3 a.m. sloppy depression tweets has my vote. <laughs> Walt W. says, create a political action committee to placate me. Uh, Gregory M. says, get with Musk and push ecofascism without blinking. <laughs> Alexandra H. says, free ice cream for life. There you go. Nathan L. Alexandra says, H. Free ice cream for life. Nathan L. says, by rounding up the rich to participate in a fight to the death gladiatorial tournament. Shane M. says, come home, come by, come by at 2 a.m. and play with the damn cat so I can get some sleep. Oh, and fight for socialized medicine. <laughs> Joanne C. says, free parking everywhere. How could a presidential candidate best uh, pander to you directly? Tanner R. says, ooey gooey mac and cheese. <laughs> Jacob J. says, by recognizing my legitimate status as the emperor of Texas, supporting me in my establishing a shadow government, sanctioning all uncooperative businesses, seizing, the, seizing their assets and placing them in my personal bank account. Evan D. says, by promising to create good-paying union jobs in a newly created gulag in my community. <laughs> Marielle C. says, getting rid of two-thirds of college administrators, fully funding university teaching and research so that people can have a future with dignified wage, salary cap on college presidents and coaches. Also, burn down the business schools. <laughs> Hemi H. says, smell my hair from behind and allow me to t demonstrate how to appropriately respond with a nut tap to open the first debate. <laughs> Pammy H. Martin S. says, uh, pass out self-detonating red ball caps. Lucy W. says, abolish prison, prison, which includes school if you listen to Foucault. Finals are coming up, and I am not stoked. <laughs> How can a politician best pander to you directly? Chris F. says, you get a guillotine, and you get a guillotine, and you get a guillotine, <laughs> and we are that? all going to eat the rich. That was uh, Chris F. Aaron C. <laughs> says, I'll settle for pizza, free pizza at this point. Garrett S. says, munch on some CBD gummies. <laughs> Dan K. says, get down on their knees and beg forgiveness. John M. says, just say you're an anarchist and get on with it. How can a presidential candidate best pander to you directly? Tom G. says, by declaring muttering a high art form and promising me a grant from the National Endowment from the Arts. For muttering. Eric T. says, get rid of my student loans and give me a house. This applies to everyone with student loans, though, not just me. <laughs> Then he says, scratch that. I could say we they broadcast live without commercials to round up all billionaires, their trials for crimes against humanity, and make a reality show out of their gulag life. But instead of getting out of the gulag, they just go to the yard against the wall. And they love the gulag. Uh, Nicholas S. says, G uh, Geo, get out the vote with fleets of used cop cars with PA speakers on the roofs. <laughs> I'm Candidate Y, and I'm on a mission from God. <laughs> Dark suits plus sunglasses. <laughs> Aaron B. says, by delivering an impassioned speech about inequality at a $2,500 a plate dinner for a bunch of rich a-holes. <laughs> Stephen B. says, by singing a clever mashup of When Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and J. Cole's Blowin' Smoke and not using the word ass. Greg G. says, promise you won't make Alex go to any organizing meetings. <laughs> uh, Vergard H. says, by challenging Jeff Bezos to a classic bare hand fist fight. <laughs> Rich G says, make Bill Maher walk shoeless through L.A. apologizing to everyone for building up false hopes in the Robert Mueller. Jintaris D said, by posting suicidal memes. Gets me every time. <laughs> How can a politician best pander to you directly, Stephen S. says, disbanding the military and using the industrial complex for fully automated luxury communism. Angela M. says, reveal their true selves. I knew Angela Merkel was going to send something. <laughs> ha, Harold J. says, a Mickey's Big Mouth annuity would be a start. <laughs> Mike F. says, Pro, uh, promise an executive order putting the kibosh on Lincoln Yards and ordering a return of the stockyards in its place. I love the smell of livestock in the morning. <laughs> Jeffy D. says, talk baby talk to me. Wear thin white linen. Tell me not to worry. It happens to lots of guys. 
Uh, uh, Jeffrey B. says, tell me my pitching prospect I should stash for my fantasy baseball team. <laughs> uh, Gabriel C. says, be an ar- anarchist. Mark R. says, I don't know. I don't have anything glib to say right now. Aww. Alexandra C. says, free land and startup costs to anyone willing to develop it using regenerative agriculture and permacultural methods. Okay. Ladio says, pay my Amazon Prime bill <laughs> and my utility bills and my rent and my meals. You see where this is going. <laughs> Rob H. sent a link to a YouTube video uh, by either the band Beer Fest for a song called Strikeout or the band Strikeout for a song called Beer Fest. I haven't been able to listen to it because uh, we're playing music right now. I mean, the band is Beer Fest. Dan B. says, they could smell my hair and give me a gentle peck on the cheek. Mm. Carlos H. Two smelling hair things on this one. Yeah. Carl J. says, cash, a lot. Talking suitcases. Andrew T. wrote, take care of my morning wood, which I protested about. So then he withdrew uh, his entry and revised to say, hamburgers with cheese, please. Jeremy S. says, just adopt the majority of the positions the Gravel teenagers have been posting or explicitly echo what Doug Henwood says that teachers and nurses are the vanguard of the working class. Chelsea R. says, how do you do, fellow kid? I, too, enjoy a rousing bout of Super Mario guys on my Sega game station. Vote for me and we'll defeat the bad guys with our ga- with our power gloves of democracy. Ready player one, am I right? Aaron D. says, invite me to a fundraising party with Cardi B. Mike C. says, pop that thing that's festering on my back. No, Mike C. Deeply gross. Uh, Amanda C. said, build a wall around Texas and put all the Republicans slash conservatives in. They aren't allowed out or on the internet ever. Warren L. says, with a pander bear of... Oh, Warren. Oh, Warren. Go ahead. QI, make this a world safe for pander bears. QI (laughs) says, by not pandering at all. James H. says, service me, B word. Ooh. Wow. Uh, A couple more. Uh, Loser. Via Twitter. (laughs) Rock Taster said, creating a media spectacle by constantly getting S-faced on the campaign trail carries around a 5-liter box of Franzia and 1.75 mLs or Ls of Popov. So he's going to vote for Beto. <laughs> That's it. Oh, oh sorry. So uh, let me see. My response to this week's question from Al, how could a presidential candidate best pander to you directly? Uh, universal health care, including dental and mental health. Uh, Making all student loans and the entire student loan industry disappear. Complete withdrawal of all U.S. troops from everywhere. Free college. Fix the damn street in front of my house. The city's been working on it nonstop now for like a decade, and it still floods when it rains, turning our block into an island. Oh, and the uh, end of all institutional racism and misogyny. And free weed for blind people. So pander away, candidates. All right, let's see. I really did like Alexandria's, uh, Alexandra's thing about uh, free ice cream for life. I liked Pammy and uh, how she was talking about, uh, you know, alluding to Joe Biden and groping women, which is really gross. Uh, Chris F's, <laughs> you get a guillotine and you get a guillotine and you get a guillotine. I like that. Greg G saying, uh, promise you won't force Alex to go to any fundraisers, which is good. It's relatable to the show shows that somebody's been listening and the content and blah, blah, blah. And Greg G actually was in town and joined us during office hours last week. So maybe I should give it to him. But no, I have a childish sense of humor. So this week's winner for the question from hell is Mike C saying that the way that you can pander to him directly if you're a presidential candidate is by popping that festering thing on his back. Mike See, congratulations, you have won a This Is Hell 
coffee mug, stainless steel coffee mug. And if anybody else wants to get one, all they have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support. Thanks to everyone for coming out to This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West of Vaughn last week. They happen every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and free show-related books if you remember to ask. Thanks to everyone who dropped by this week. Thanks to Greg and Brendan who came in from out of town to join us. Wally, Joel, Eric, Ronaldo, Leo, Alex, Jeremy, Rachel, Derek. Dave, Bradley, Shelley, Pete, and Jordan, and everyone else I can't remember because I was still really in a very depressed state from last weekend's interview on near-term societal collapse due to climate change. That kind of thing can really ruin your week. You can join us at Carrie's, the bar downstairs from our studio, every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Carrie's Lounge, 2251, West Devon. All right, do I have stuff over here that I have to get to? Yeah, screw it. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, private equity, not innovative disruptors like Amazon, are destroying bricks-and-mortar retail grocery stores. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin complains intersectionally. We might get back to listener feedback. We might get to the Beto O'Rourke, the new installment of the crazy things he wrote while he was in the hacker group Cult of the Dead Cow, and going by the name Psychedelic Warlord. Uh, we'll tell you what we've been up to on Patreon, on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online this week, and some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support. And what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. No matter what the corporate mainstream commercial media tells you, innovative disruption by online retailers like Amazon is not the biggest threat to bricks-and-mortar grocery stores and grocery store chains. The biggest threat to your local supermarket shutting down isn't competition on the Internet. Instead, grocers across the country are being stripped of their profits while watching their jobs disappear and their communities become devastated. Here to tell us the real threat to what are often the heart of a local community, the grocery store, economist Eileen Applebaum, and human resources scholar Rosemary Batt are co-authors of the Center for Economic Policy and Research Report, Private Equity Pillage, Grocery Stores, and Workers at Risk. First, welcome back to This Is Hell, Eileen. Uh, great to be with you again. And welcome to the show, Rosemary. Thank you. This is Eileen's second appearance on This Is Hell, as she appeared on our show back in September of 2014 to discuss her and Rosemary's award-winning book, Private Equity at Work. Rosemary, we would have had you on the show at that time, but unfortunately we didn't have the technical ability here at the station. It's one of the reasons that we're building our own studio. Some things get fixed, some things don't. Let's start with you, Eileen. You write, since 2015, seven major grocery chains employing more than 125,000 workers have filed for bankruptcy. The media has blamed disruptors, low-cost competitors like Walmart and high-end markets like Whole Foods, now owned by Amazon. But the real disruptors in this industry are the private equity owners who were behind all seven bankruptcies. So, Eileen, then why 
does the media blame Walmart, Whole Foods, Amazon? What does that reveal about the way the media understands the economy, especially when it comes to the retail sector? Well, how convenient to be able to blame technology and not the uh, the decisions of uh, Wall Street companies that are just getting rich off of these bankruptcies. Certainly, Amazon and Walmart are a challenge. Organic food is a challenge. The way people shop is a challenge. Supermarkets have always faced challenges. The question is, these were major supermarkets. We're not talking about mom-and-pop shops. And the question is, why do they not have the resources to invest in themselves, to meet the competitive challenges, and to outdo uh, a company like uh, Whole Foods owned by Amazon uh, or Walmart, which uh, has its own uh, audience but also it, 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 its own limits. So uh, we know that it's possible to beat them. We know that other uh, supermarket chains that, that the uh, bankrupt chains uh, compete with, uh, not owned by private equity, have made the necessary changes and are prospering. So it's not just the question of uh, there's challenges out there. There's the question of who has the resources to make the investments in workers as well as in technology to meet the competition. And Rosemary, you and Eileen point out this isn't just in grocery stores, but this paper is a focus on grocery stores. But what is more of a driving force in the closing of places other than grocery stores like Toys R Us? Is online or online uh, retail is online retail making bricks and mortar stores obsolete or private equity trying to find new ways to create profits without concerns for actually keeping the stores open and functioning? Right. So the the key uh, to the bankruptcies is the amount of debt that private equity puts on the uh, companies when it buys them out. So private equity firms typically buy out a company and take it private uh, using uh anywhere from 60 to 80% debt. In the recent buyout of Safeway in 2015 by Albertsons, they loaded 82% of the debt of, a, of the total buyout of $9.5 billion on the company. So that means that those companies uh, that are bought out by private equity have to compete with no resources to do the kinds of investments in store upgrades and facilities and new products and online, the kinds of things that companies uh, without that debt load can, uh, can do perfectly well. So in the same period of, the, of 2015 to 18, when we looked at when these seven companies' grocery chains went bankrupt under private equity ownership, there were no publicly traded companies that went bankrupt in the meantime, and they're facing the same competition. So Publix, Kroger's, uh, Sprouts, Markets, etc., all have been maintaining and improving their ability to compete um, in this marketplace. Eileen, uh, so what's missed when we are told or we even believe that bricks and mortar stores are no longer necessary and can simply be replaced by online shopping? What are we misled into believing? Because there seems to be this sense, and I've heard it from a lot of people, and I know that's it's very anecdotal, but there seems to be uh, a sense that there is an inevitability of the end of all bricks and mortar stores, and they're not even necessary. So what are we mis- misled into believing when we are told that the real threat to brick and mortar stores are disruptive innovators? So what I think is true is that we are moving in the, in the direction of uh, multimodal ways of 
uh, meeting shoppers' demands. Uh, and it may be that in the future we won't need as many uh, stores as we have now, but there's no evidence that they're about to disappear. In fact, even with all of the retail bankruptcies that you've read about, the uh, retail apocalypse, actually more retail stores have opened than have closed in the same period. So it's not as if retail is going away. The store, I mean, the brick-and-mortar stores are going away. Uh, they may be doing something a little bit different. I mean, Amazon felt like it wanted to have Whole Foods. It felt the need, if it's going to be in the food business, of actually having brick-and-mortar stores. People want that experience. They want to be able to go in and see what is new. Uh, uh, the the uh, groceries often invite in uh, small startup companies that have new products to see what's going to sell. Uh, there are many reasons that you might want to go into a store, uh, and stores are becoming more experiential, but that you get something out of being in the store. Uh, so I don't think brick-and-mortar is going away. I do think that most retailers are going to have to be able to compete not only in the brick-and-mortar space, but also in the online uh, e-delivery, uh, all the other spaces. Uh, and, and we have seen that. I mean, if you take a look at Kroger's, the largest uh, supermarket chain in the U.S., and uh, not private equity-owned, it's publicly traded, it kept its resources, and it has done an astounding job of uh, meeting the competition, beating the competition. It has a unionized workforce. It set aside uh, funds for upgrading training to go with the new technology, for up, uh, up, uh, uh, raising pay to go with the new skills, and even uh, putting money into workers' pension funds uh, to make up for the financial crisis when most companies stop putting money into pension funds. So it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, working on all cylinders. It's, it's mastering the, the multimodal way of delivering uh, food to consumers, and it's doing it without uh, taking advantage of its workforce uh, and without the problems that its main competitor, Albertsons, which is owned by Cerberus, is facing. Eileen, let me just follow up on that just for a second, because I think I did some really poor analysis on the show, and I want you to correct me. Uh, what I said was when uh, Amazon bought Whole Foods, I thought for sure that what they were going to do was strip profits and act like a private equity firm and, and Whole Foods. Why is that not the case? What, is, what, what do I get wrong in that kind of analysis that, they're, that a company like uh, Whole Foods, when they get into the grocery store business, that they'll act like a private equity firm? Well, it's too soon to say, but so far that hasn't happened. Uh, and what they are doing is perfecting what, Am what Amazon uh, is doing with Whole Foods, is perfecting its ability to uh, function both in brick-and-mortar space and in uh, the online space. It's still the case that many people want to be able to come into the store at least once in a while to see what the quality is, to see what new products there are that you may not have known about in the past. Uh, you may not want to do that every time, and if you're just buying routine things, you may not need to do it at all. If you're buying perishables, you might want to show up. Uh, you might want to phone in the order and show up and pick it up. There's so many different ways that you can shop now at Whole Foods. And if you're lucky enough to be where Kroger's has stores, uh, you have that same possibility with them. Uh, and, in fact, uh, Whole Foods is, is re really a rather small player. It has a handful of stores compared to most of the major supermarket chains. Rosemary, you and Eileen write that <clears throat> private equity 
have extracted millions from grocery stores in the last five years, funds that could have been used to upgrade stores, as you were mentioning earlier, enhance products and services, and invest in employee training and higher wages. As with the bankruptcies of common household names like Toys R Us, private equity owners throw companies they owe into unsustainable debt in order to capture high returns for themselves and their investors. If the company they have starved of resources goes broke, they've already made their bundle. This is all perfectly legal. It should not be. Rosemary, why should this be illegal? Isn't just this the cost we pay for having private equity around that can help out a business when it's having problems? Well, um, no. I mean, why should we put up with that kind of robbery? Um, we should put uh, constraints on uh, private equity to uh, do a, a positive uh, job when it, uh, it it buys out a company. For example, if it buys out a small company, uh, it usually doesn't put as much debt on the company. So why don't we put a cap on the amount of debt that can be levered on a company? Um, the other um, major, I'll, I'll give you a, just an example of from Topps. Uh, when Morgan Stanley bought out uh, Topps and loaded it with debt, it doubled the size of the debt relative to the uh, purchase price. 55% of that debt went directly into dividends for um, Morgan Stanley and its investors. I mean, that's criminal. So um, we've got to do some reforms in terms of capping the amount of uh, debt that can be used. The additional thing is that often when a a private equity firm, if it doesn't get the returns, uh, from uh, an, an investment uh, through, for example, selling it in three to five years, it will load that company up with additional debt. So it, it takes on another loan, puts that debt on the company, and then does what is called a dividend recap, and it gives the money that it took from the loan directly to the investors. Okay, so um, we should put a limit on that. We should say in the first, um, you know, three to five years of an investment, you're not allowed to take that kind of a dividend and simply load the company with additional debt. Uh, I'll just give you one other example from uh, the Southeastern Groceries, which was um, taken over by Lone Star, and uh, Lone Star threw it into bankruptcy twice in the last 10 years. Just to give you one example, it took out one loan in um, 2013 for $475 million, gave that all to the investors and and the private equity, and then required Southeastern to pay $200 million a year for four years. So $800 million and more in debt just to pay for $475 million to the dividends that went to private equity. That's criminal. So, Rosemary, let me follow up on that. Was this illegal at some time and it became legal? Is this kind of profiteering with private equity anything new? Um, it It's always been technically legal, but it's that uh, private equity learned how to take advantage of loopholes in laws that conventional businesses have not been able to do. If you have a publicly traded business, they have to be much more careful of their reputation. Um, so they can't be... Um, loading debt on on the company and um, uh, doing this kind of, taking this kind of behavior. But 
if the private equity firm is behind the scenes, then, um, for example, when Southeastern Grocers went bankrupt, they didn't um, they didn't blame private equity because people didn't even know that private equity owned it. So they can go under the radar and take advantage of loopholes that publicly traded companies are not able to do. Eileen, uh, in part of the process when they are getting in more and more and more debt to the companies that have been bought up by uh, private equity firms, one of the things that you point out, that you and uh, Rosemary point out in your writing, is that they often will purchase other stores and go in more and more debt as they grow and grow in size. Is the idea that they're trying to outpace that debt with possible more profits from more stores? Are, are they trying to eliminate the competition in some long view of becoming a stable and large player within the grocery market sector? So this is a very common strategy used by private equity everywhere, not just in retail and not just in groceries. They do not plan to grow organically. They do not invest in the companies that they have already bought. They use the companies they've already bought as what they call a platform, and then they roll up or add on many other companies to grow that way. What they want to do is they, what their, their, their best uh, outcome is to be able to do an IPO, put the company back on the public markets. Uh, usually, uh, public shareholders have no idea of how much debt has been uh, loaded onto these companies, and you can cash out at the beginning. You know, the, you have the IPO, you have the uh, the the, the uh, birth of uh, of enthusiasm when it first comes on. The share price is high. Private equity cashes out immediately, uh, and then uh, you see the share price fall as it becomes cl- clearer and clearer that these companies are just shells by this time having been loaded up with debt, having fallen behind on modernization. So you can't sell the original. You you, you are not able successfully to have an IPO for the original company that you bought. But you hope that with the add-ons, your revenue will be high, your profits will be high, at least for a period. And you hope to be able to do an IPO in that period. And this is such a common strategy and tactic. It goes on all the time. You have to ask yourself, where the heck are the antitrust regulators? Why is this allowed to happen? But private equity flies under the radar uh, with respect to regulators. I, I don't understand it myself, uh, but that seems to be the case. And so they are able to do this add-on strategy. If they are successful, they have a much bigger company. They do an IPO. They cash out their initial investment. Uh, and uh, good luck to the company. Sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't after the IPO. But for these particular companies that we write about, they're, they're in the grocery in, uh, sector, their debt problems were so large. Their lack of modernization was so obvious that even though they tried to do IPOs, they were not successful. Nobody wanted to take on buying those companies uh, if they went public. They couldn't get that initial uh, you know, snap to the, to the price and, and, and cash out. And so they've tried many other things. As uh, Rosemary pointed out, they do these dividend recaps. They sell off real estate. They find other ways to enrich themselves and their investors at the expense of the companies they own. Once it becomes clear they can't do an IPO, they have nothing left to lose. They will do as much as they can to enrich themselves. 
But uh, Rosemary, um, what Eileen was just saying, one of the things that I was thinking about when she was talking about the IPO is how uh, in one of the cases, I can't remember what store it is, they go public, they sell at $13, and uh, the private equity firm is then now open to public uh, scrutiny, or at least their invest- the investors in the company are, and their stock starts to plummet and plummet and plummet until mm-hmm. the company goes under. And I can't remember which one it was, but Rosemary. Does private equity try to take corporations public that they know are going to fail? And if so, why do they attract any investors whatsoever? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that question. Um, I'm not sure why they, uh, what the logic is um, when they decide, you know, they think they have a shot at uh, going public. Um, But Albertsons is a good case uh, just recently that tried to went to go public with an IPO and failed, right? So they they have, you know, Albertsons. Uh, uh, they own Albertsons, so Safeway, Shaw's, Acme, Vaughn, Star Market, um, and they uh, they did this exactly the kind of thing uh, Eileen is talking about, where they kept adding chains, and they uh, ended with Safeway. They had um, the company had. $12.5 billion in debt, um, and uh, it tried an IPO and failed. So um, I think this, uh, this strategy of, of trying to do an IPO is not uh, being as successful as it was in the past. They are not able to do the IPOs that they used to be able to do. Eileen? <clears throat> I think investors are getting smarter. You know, initially what happens is some bank takes on the risk, and then they hope that they get rid of the, enough of the shares and that everything goes well. So no bank wants to take on the initial risk. And then the other thing is that the main uh, first buyers of these things, when you have the, of the shares of stock, when you have an IPO, are the people who manage your 401k and your uh, IRA. Uh, and to tell you the truth, I think they do stuff them uh, with things that you might not, as a retail investor, have bought yourself because they will uh, sometimes uh, be taken in by these IPOs. But these companies were so riddled with debt and so far behind in modernization that there were no likely there were no likely takers. No bank wanted to take on the risk because they could not line up enough large investors. Uh, you know the, the kind I'm talking about, the the ones that manage your pension, your your 401k rather. They couldn't line up enough of them to be sure that they would be able to have a successful. IPO. And so I, I do think that the buyers of these shares of stock when these companies try to go public are getting more sophisticated and know to look at the amount of debt, uh, at their credit rating, at uh, what they've done uh, with the money that they have. Well, let me follow up on that with Rosemary. Rosemary, you and Eileen write that the future of regional supermarket chains is a major concern for consumers, vendors, local communities, workers, and their unions. So, Rosemary, what would you say to someone who argues? If a grocery store closes, if a whole chain closes, and those areas demand a grocery store, capitalism, the market, will provide one. And more than likely, in the same space, the closed store did business. So losing a grocery store is no big deal. And if your area really needs one, some entrepreneur or competing chain will provide a store. If a grocery store is in demand by a community, won't that store be supplied by the market? Not necessarily. The market is imperfect. Um, and a lot of these store, stores are distributed 
throughout the country in small towns, in rural areas. Um, they they may not uh, look like a very appealing uh, place to uh, invest in at all. Um, the uh, the infrastructure of these stores may not be, you know, may, they may require a whole new overhaul. Um, there are lots of reasons uh, whether a uh, investor wants to go into a, a poor neighborhood, in a low-income neighborhood where they're not sure they can make much money. Um, so I don't think there's this kind of perfect redistribution of of capital from one place to another. It's it's very lumpy, and there's no guarantee that you'll get a new investor that will want to go into places where you've had a traditional store for, for many years. Also, many of these large chains are unionized. Uh, groceries and supermarket, this is probably the most unionized part of retail, uh, and it's not clear. These are good-paying jobs. They come with benefits, and... Uh, 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 and good wages. It's not clear that these newcomers are going to behave in the same way, uh, and uh, that's a problem for the community. The community supplies the jobs. These jobs are important to the local uh, uh, economy. But you also point out, Eileen and Rosemary, you also point out how um, pension funds are invested in private equity. So, Eileen, do workers profit from private equity's actions in their pension funds and then get hurt and punished by their actions at their store? So Rosemary and I have done our best to uh, inform the pension funds, uh, trustees uh, and the staff that the past performance of private equity is no longer holds up. There might have been a justification prior to the financial crisis for investing in private equity. But since the financial crisis, when you look at the funds that were launched since in each year since the financial crisis, you find that those funds at the median just track the stock market. That means half of the funds do worse than the stock market. And a great number of them, if they're just tracking the stock market, are not yielding any extra return for all the extra risk that the pension fund takes on. It really, uh, it, it's very baffling why the pension funds continue to give uh, private equity all of the money that they're giving them. They, they're just lining up to give private equity their money, and uh, private equity feels like it's in the catbird seat. It already charged these pension funds way high uh, expenses and costs and so on. Uh, the, the, the fees are, are huge compared to anything else that they could be investing in. Uh, and now they want to raise the amount of carried interest, what they collect out of the profits at the end, from 20% of the profits to 30% of the profits. And some of them are going to succeed. The most popular companies, uh, private equity firms, are going to succeed. This is not a good deal for the pension funds. This is not a good deal for their beneficiaries. Uh, but we have had a difficult time making this clear. Rosemary, what do you think makes it so that isn't clear to the pension funds? Why are they being so intransigent in not uh, divesting from private equity firms? Right. So this is, you know, this is such a contradiction that we've uh, tried to investigate and we've tried to interview uh, pension fund managers and really get a handle on this. Part of it is that... um, they they have been schooled or uh, there's a deep norm 
that you have to diversify your portfolio. And they rely on um, investment advisors to kind of tell them what they should do. The investment advisors uh, all say, give them a norm that, you know, 20% of their pension funds should be invested in in so-called alternatives. And um, it's, you know, the advisors... uh, you know, have something to gain too, because uh, if uh, the pension funds invest in private equity or hedge funds or something, those are very complicated um, funds to invest in. And so the investment advisors uh, can justify their existence by uh, recommending that the funds invest in uh, uh, things like private equity. The pension funds... um, um, many of them are quite sophisticated, um, so you would think that a CalPERS uh, would actually get it, um, but there are deep, deep norms that have existed for a long time. It's very difficult to change people's behavior. Um, at, you know, After the, the financial crisis, there was a lot of d- disgruntlement. Um, among the pension funds about private equity. But then as the stock market came back, well, private equity returns started coming back. And so they started getting, you know, their um, their returns in, say, the 2012 through 15, 16 period. And they said, oh, well, okay, they've come back. So it's just, you know, it's there's a cycle here, but we really do believe in private equity. So there seems to be a number of kind of norms and institutions that really prevent people from uh, breaking out of these very deep uh, beliefs and norms. Eileen, why is there interest in getting in the grocery business for private equity when grocery store business, the grocery sector, has such thin profit margins? So I think that uh, retail in general and groceries as well are no longer as attractive as they once were, but it's never been about the margin uh, on selling groceries. They get into it uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that the groceries, as with retail in general, typically own their own real estate. So you always have the possibility of selling off the real estate, pocketing the money, and going on your merry way. The second thing is they generally have low debt. So you buy a company that has low debt, you're able to add lots more debt to it. You buy a company that already has a lot of debt, uh, it's harder to to, uh, add debt to it. So uh, retail in general has owned its own real estate, has had a low debt uh, amount of debt, and has high cash flow. So you can always put your hand in the till and take out a dividend. So these are the three things that have made retail and groceries so attractive to private equity. Uh, And it's only now when they discover that in the end, if you really take all of this out of the stores, people have caught on to the game. Nobody wants to uh, IPO. You can't do a successful IPO. You can't sell uh, the stores to uh, another company. Uh, You are just really stuck. And so you, you can make your money back. But you can't get that second bite of the apple. You can't get the extra bang that you get when you have a profitable exit. So uh, it's becoming less attractive. But really, it's the real estate, the low debt, and the high cash flow that has made retail in general, groceries in particular, attractive to private equity. Rosemary, does uh, private equity have a choice in maximizing profits? Because whenever I do... An interview like this, immediately immediately afterwards, somebody will tell me 
that uh, you're required by law to create as much profit for investors as possible, as much profit for shareholders as possible. Does private equity have a choice in maximizing profits? Sure. Everybody does. Um, they uh, Let me just say, first of all, they do not try to maximize profits at the level of the company that they the the portfolio company um they are maximizing profits at the level of the private equity firm itself and that firm owns many companies it has a few funds and then it invests in many companies and so um the game that private equity plays is to take risks Using people, other people's money, I mean, 98% of the investment fund is from the investors. And if one company goes bankrupt, um, that's fine because they've got a lot of other investments that they are playing with. Um, and sometimes, often, you know, the, the investors, the, pro, the pension funds will take a hit. Uh, because they have invested in a fund, and that fund uh, invests in a, a, a big uh, buyout, and, and that goes bankrupt. And uh, so they don't. Um, they say they're uh, doing their best to um, do their fiduciary responsibility back to the investors, but they they don't always get with the kind of strategy they use. We have been speaking with economist Eileen Applebaum and human resources scholar Rosemary Batt. They are the co-authors of the Center for Economic Policy and Research Report, Private Equity Pillage, Grocery Stores and Workers at Risk. You can find the report at CEPR.net. The final question for all of our guests, Eileen may remember, but Rosemary, the final question for all of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response. Let's start with Eileen. Eileen, you and uh, Rosemary write, Albertson's future is uncertain. Albertson's debt-weakened state has undermined its private equity owners' attempts at a speedy and profitable exit. Will they now turn to asset sales to pull cash out and reward themselves without regard to the poor prospects this will create for Albertson's? It's 280,000 workers in the hundreds of communities the stores serve. So, Eileen... How inevitable is Albertson's failure? Well, I don't think it's inevitable. It's a very big company. It still has the possibility. Uh, It's owned by Cerberus, which has deep pockets. And if it wanted to do something about it, if the pension funds that are invested in Cerberus uh, put pressure on them to do something about it, I do think that we would see, uh, we we could see uh, this company come back to life. It's huge. It's really huge. It's the second largest uh, supermarket chain in America. Uh, There's no reason that it can't succeed, but it does need resources. And Cerberus, which has taken so much out of it, should have an obligation to put something back. Rosemary, my question from hell for you is the question from hell that I asked Eileen five years ago. Can there be good private equity? Absolutely. Um, We have cases in our book in which we show that particularly small boutique private equity firms uh, that may specialize in a particular industry and know that industry well, um, they particularly 
have um, filled in where small commercial banks used to uh, fill in in providing loans to small businesses where other opportunities no longer exist. So uh, private equity can provide financing for small firms. They can help them um, become more sophisticated in their accounting, human resource function, um, technology, et cetera, and kind of get them up to scale um, in order to uh, maybe be sold to uh, a, a publicly traded corporation. That happens in these buyouts that are small. Um, but part of the reason is that they, they, can't, they can't lever a lot of debt on those companies. They can't use the kind of financial engineering playbook that they use with the larger companies. And so they have the opportunity to make uh, improvements in operations and uh, help a small company get to scale. And there we've seen some positive role. That's why we say that we need regulation to limit the worst excesses of private equity so that um, where they are able to uh, play a positive role, they can continue to do so. And is, are any of the Democratic candidates uh, suggesting that? Is that is this moving through as any legislation at this point in time, Rosemary? Uh, I probably uh, can answer that question better. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I don't. I I cannot get into the details, obviously, but yes, uh, they are definitely there. Are definitely more than one eff- effort underway. Uh, one in particular to limit the excesses, and another to protect uh, workers in the case of bankruptcy. Uh, ba- workers are at the end of the line in case of, the, of bankruptcy. First, the, uh, the creditors the, the get paid, then the vendors get paid. If there's anything left over, then a worker who's owed vacation pay or Warnock pay or anything else will get paid. Usually they don't get anything. Uh, and so this would move the workers' claims right up there with administrative expenses, like the rent you owe the landlord and so on. That gets paid first. Workers should get paid first. So there are two big efforts underway, one to, to restrain the worst excesses of private equity in general, and the other to introduce legislation that will help workers in the case of bankruptcy in general, but certainly in the case when private equity uh, leads a company into bankruptcy. Thank you so much, Eileen and Rosemary, for being on our show. When you guys are going to be putting out another report, your book in 2014 was fantastic. This report is excellent. When you have some more work coming out, please contact us because we would love to have you both back on the show. Sure. Thank you so much. Happy to do that. Thank you. All right. Have a good weekend. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. This is hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. Coming up during the moment of truth in a couple of minutes, Jeff Dorchin complains intersectionally. Speaking of our horrible business model where we stupidly put people before profits, on Patreon this week at patreon.com slash this is hell, if you heard my monologue from earlier today about me being depressed and you enjoyed that monologue, you schadenfreude-filled freak, then you'll love my depressing monologue on my obsession with near-term societal collapse due to climate change caused by our conversation with sustainability scholar Jem Bendel, who now argues sustainability is not sustainable and there's nothing we can do about it. If you like gallows humor with gallows so big they can hang the entire planet until dead, then you will love my opening monologue on our most recent Patreon podcast from this week. As I was talking climate change, we shared our March 15th, 2008 on-air conversation with Maud 
Barlow, the head of the Council of Canadians, Canada's largest public advocacy organization. We spoke with Maude about her then-just-published book, Blue Covenant, The Global Water Crisis and the Coming Battle for the Right to Water. But again, my talk on coming inevitable climate change and and soon, as well as our interview with Maude on the global water crisis. None of that's available anywhere except at patreon.com slash this is hell and you can only hear that by becoming a subscriber and supporter of this is hell special thanks this week for joining us on patreon goes to peter and andrew thanks for joining us on patreon this week and you should join us on patreon as well because we're going to be doing something and we're going to be sharing more exclusive content only for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell including coming up Wednesday, May 8th, Thursday, May 9th, we are doing two, two, we are doing each day a two hour live streaming podcast. But only Patreon subscribers will have access to the live stream. Then that Saturday, we will be playing the live recordings in their entirety, as I will yet again be trying to celebrate Christmas with the in laws, or technically outlaws, as me and the girlie aren't married. We tried uh, during the holidays, but they got sick. Then we tried in February, and I got sick. Then we tried a couple of weeks ago, but another family member died. So we went to the service. So we're trying one more time. Now, in the past, we would have simply played another best of episode, but now, because of the amazing support of our subscribers on Patreon. We can actually do a live recording during the week in our own studios provided by Patreon's, uh, patrons. Incredible support and give you all new content even on weeks when I can't do the show. Become a This Is Hell subscriber at patreon.com slash hell coming up on this week's show. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin complains intersectionally and that's probably all that's going to be happening because we're running out of time. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's This Is Hell. Alex Jerry, this is hell, your home for futilitarian content. Alex, I know you have FA on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Cursing the darkness without a single candle. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I've been trying to channel someone with admirable traits lately because I have none left. Not sure I ever did. Was I kind and forgiving at one time? Emotionally generous? Did I suffer fools gladly? Did I suckle baby iguanas at my teat of human kindness? I am despicable, self-despicable. I am very self-reliant in that one regard. I can definitely despise myself. All by myself. I do have one consolation. At least I'm not a social climber. I lack the prehensile tail, much less the embouchure it takes to cling to someone else's upwardly moving prehensile tail by my lips. But the rest of you, oh my God, how did you all get like this? You're worse than me. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. I say that without a shred of proof. Just evidence gathered like one might gather crumbs on a tablecloth and call them a cookie like Alex Jones does with fragments of lies. Just think, Alex Jones exists. That alone ought to be enough to convince any objective observer that our species has outlived its redemptive potential. I can't figure out who I hate more, the left, the right, or the middle, or the up, or the down. 
There's an interlocking ecology of annoyances these days. I can't stand the interrogation of the self that brings forth nothing but oversimplifications. The academics who can't utter one comprehensible word, and the academics who can utter comprehensible words, but they're always reactionary words. I don't know who's more intolerable, the people I can't stand or the people who can't stand me are the ones who overlap into both categories. The white people and the Chinese and the Persians and Greeks and Mongols and Tatars started it, conquering. But even that idea is too complicated for a lot of you. I can't even itemize what agrees with me anymore. This is how bad it's gotten. This is how bad you've all gotten. It's the white men. It's the black men. It's the straight men. It's the gay men. It's the women of color. It's the white women. It's the Jews. It's the Gentiles. It's the goddamn Buddhists. I'm just I'm fed up. Not a single one of you has a decent idea about how to proceed. We're just going to run in place here. Just jog in place, shouting one incomprehensible chant over and over while our spinning wheels wear out the turf and dig a hole underneath ourselves, a bottomless pit for us to fall into. I've tried to be patient and generous, patient and gracious. A lot of good that did. You people lose respect for a gracious individual. You think just because you can walk all over someone that that's all he's good for. Well, in my case, you're right, but it's still very shallow of you. It doesn't make sense to make sense anymore. Ideologies have all become grotesque. They've swollen like some kind of leathery pumpkins, swollen with their own internal moisture, festering with bacteria like an obese blister growing on some eldritch garden vine. I've tried being analytical. I've tried being emotional. I've tried being exuberant. I've tried being sober. None of these conditions appeals to me. I've heard someone call this an election year. It's not. It's still 2019. It's nothing. That's a nothing year. This is the year of grasping the fog. I got an idea. Why don't we all just take the fog, braid it into rope, and hang ourselves from the clouds? Huh? How about it? Huh? Why? What's so great about what you've got planned? I understand I'm not giving you a chance with this vague Jeremiah. Super vague. I know. What exactly are you upset about, Jeff? Can you be specific so we might at least pretend to care? Go through the motions of caring like an NRA beholden legislator after a mass school shooting? No, I can't. I'm just utterly atomistically aggrieved. My agitation is Brownian, like molecules in broth. I just can't, you know? I just can't. The prospect of receiving your insincere thoughts and prayers for my groping, blind aggravation is no incentive to focus. Can't you just feel it? Every ethnic, socioeconomic, phenotypic, genotypic, every kind of person out there, each and all is up in arms, everyone for themselves and God against all. I know you've got to have felt like this at some point recently. You haven't? You might have, but you're not sure because I'm being so expansively inclusive, it's hard to tell. I'm just trying to give voice to the desperate sensation that there is no way out of the mess. That's all, and I am succeeding to my own satisfaction. Although satisfied, I am not. I hate what's going on these days. I hate the plot, the writing, everything. But I will admit, I'm interested. You have my attention. I'm invested. Not monetarily. Monetarily? Really? Me? You gotta be kidding. No, I'm bankrupt of every asset you can imagine. I have no interest but the honest one. I'm binging on Earth and the human species. I'm hooked. I actually have real affection for this story I hate. The plot twists I can't stomach. The characters I'd like to throttle. I can't help it. You got me interested. I'm hooked. This is why we're doomed. 
I suspect the only reason we're all participating in this sick, nihilistic, mumblecore charade, this existential doomsday soap opera, is because we want to know what happens next. Will Dick finally get down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow? We're so weak. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Somebody very close to me one time told me that they were not going to kill themselves because they just wanted, they were just curious what's going to happen next. That was the thing that was keeping them from killing themselves. I think it was me. It might have been you. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said I wanted to kill myself when I'm around you because you can make me completely forget about killing myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. All right, Jeffy. We're up against the clock. All right. See you some other day. Stay beautiful. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is Hell. The best way for you to get the good word out about This Is Hell is to share the show or any of the interviews that we have featured on our show. Thanks this week goes out to the people who did share the show. Some of the people, at least, because a lot of people do it anonymously or do it on Twitter or other places. These are just the people who uh, shared the show on Facebook. Tom, Rob, Daniel, DeCaife, uh, Astrid, Matt, Rich, Julie, James W., Howard, Greg, M., Simon, Francesco, Jeremy, Jan, James, M, Jesse, Nick, and Gorilla Gramophonics. Thanks to everyone for sharing This Is Hell, however you shared our show or any of its content. We truly appreciate your support. Don't forget This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is more a think and drink. Happens at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and show-related books. Don't forget, if you are an artist or you know an artist, that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show during our anniversary party on July 27th. Put it on your calendar now, July 27th. Email me your art or the art that you enjoy and we'll definitely consider it to be part of the 2019 show again email me your art or someone's art you like to chuck at this is hell.com and maybe that art will be part of this year's annual this is art show that happens during our anniversary party every year again that's happening on july 27th and we're also looking for musicians to perform as well so if you're an artist or a musician or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in our anniversary party this year at Carrie's on July 27th, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's happening on next week's show? Ruben Anderson will be back on to talk about his book, No-Go World, How Fear is Redrawing Our Maps and Infecting Our Politics, and I'm working on a bunch of other people. And subscribe to... This is Hell at Patreon.com slash This is Hell, so you can hear this week's Patreon podcast, which we're doing probably on Wednesday evening, and then immediately afterwards, I'll be going downstairs to uh, have fun during office hours. All right. Uh, I want to thank everybody for participating on this week's show, Alex Jerry for producing, Jeff Dorchin for doing The Moment of Truth, and thanks to all of our guests, economist Eileen Applebaum and human resources scholar Rosemary Batt, the co-authors of the report we just discussed, Private Equity Pillage, Grocery Stores and Workers at Risk. Thanks to historian Donna Murch, who returned to This Is Hell. Talk about the Boston Review article she has written, How Race Made the Opioid Crisis. Thanks to Marisol LeBron, author of Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence and Resistance in Puerto Rico, for appearing on this week's show, as well as Brian Muir, who talked about his new book, Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street and the New Imperialism in Brazil. This week's Hangover Cure... A packet of Tato's, as in the popular 
Irish chip. And they say put it between two pieces of white bread with butter on them, which is crazy and deadly and sounds delicious. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we have introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.